And we are live. What's up, guys? Welcome to Money Monday. We are here with the legend himself, George, George Gammon. Gammon. Let's get into a <laughs> big show. What's up, guys? Welcome to Fresh Fit Podcast. It's Monday, Monday. We got George Gammon in the house. Quick announcement before we get into the show, guys. Number one, patreon.com slash fresh fit. It's where you get all the exclusive behind the scenes content that no one else has yep. of us kicking out annoying girls, doing <laughs> Zoom calls, <laughs> double dates, <laughs> double dates, whatever Everything. else you want to check out, man. Whether it's womanizing, making money, or you know, getting girls or Instagram or getting in shape, we got you on Patreon, patreon.com slash fresh fit. Also, we're on Spotify, Google, and Apple Podcasts. Chris posts about three to five times a week every yep. weekday. Also, get the merch, Fresh Shit Podcast Store, for all the shirts and hoodies that Fresh never wears on air. Check us out over there, freshshitpodcaststore.com. <laughs> I just updated it, add some new, I took out the uh, Simpson Pimps. I got some complaints from some guys saying, hey, man, when I wear the shirt and it has Simpson Pimps in the back, I get in trouble. So I made new shirts for 2022 that no longer have the Simpson Pimp in the back. <laughs> also, guys, we have another YouTube channel. It's called Fresh Fit Clips. If you don't have time to watch the full pod, go ahead and check us out on Fresh Fit Clips so you can watch me lose my hair. In slow time versus, well, no, actually in fast time versus me losing it in slow time during the long streams when I debate these girls. And then also, Fresh, you got a vlog channel you want to talk about? So guys, for behind the scenes, the vlog channel, check it out. We just had a yacht party on Saturday. It was dope. We're posting that today as well. So thank you guys for watching that channel. And 100K on the way. Let's go. Bam, bam. And then, uh, Chris, what about you? Guys, follow my Aaron, my Twitch, Aaron Poxon. Let's get it, Merce Gang. We out here. And follow my YouTube, Aaron's ACP Clips. Uh, at YouTube, let's get it. That boy just woke up. Yeah, my man yeah, is man. dead, bro. God damn. Bro, I was like, yo, come on. I'm like, all right, I got you, bet. Yeah, man. So, uh, without further ado, George, welcome to the show, man. We're excited to have you. Oh, the legend himself. Yes. Yeah, I'm um, excited to be here. Thanks for having and, me. Yeah, man. And uh, you know, we met you through Rolo. Shout out yeah. to Rolo Tomas. Yeah. He's also in Florida. Yeah, we met at um the event that you had. Yeah, Rolo Capitals Live. Yes, and that was an awesome event. Rolo was there. Robert Kisaki, a lot of other people. Uh, can uh, McElroy was there as well. Yeah, Kenny McElroy was there. It's Just a lot dope. of people in the macro economics world, the investment, finance, real estate, crypto, gold, all that. Freedom, liberty. And it's funny because I asked um, George in an elevator. I was like, bro, why do you do what you do? Because you don't need the money. Yeah. And he told me, I was like, wow, it makes sense. So yeah, I just love talking about it. I mean, uh, what was interesting is I retired in 2012 mm -hmm. and I had enough money kind of saved up that if I got a five or 6% return, I wouldn't have to go back to work. Mm. So just being an entrepreneur my whole life, I mean, you guys know how it, how it goes. You don't want to delegate that to a financial planner. Uh, you want to take control sure. of your own financial destiny. Absolutely. So I went out there and started to study, okay, how does this investing thing work? How does economics work? And I was actually in Singapore at the time at the Marina Bay Sands. It was about 10 minutes before a dinner date. And uh, I was on YouTube, in fact, and I stumbled across a series from Milton Friedman. Mm. called free to choose so milton friedman was a very influential economist in the 19s well, pretty much through his whole life but he won the nobel prize in 1976 mm -hmm. and this uh 
uh, free to choose series completely blew my mind. Mm. And that took me down the rabbit hole. And I started studying other great investors like Stan Druckenmiller and uh, Warren Buffett and Jim Rogers. And that kind of led me to a conclusion that the way I want to invest is just to buy things when they're cheap and sell them when they're expensive. Bam. Mm. And that, that sounds That's really like, what investing really is anyway, in general, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> really in, a it is in a nutshell. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't want to get too far off on a tangent, but what most people do is they try to guess the price direction. So, you know, what is the price of real estate going to do right now? Well, I don't know. I don't care because I can never pick a top and I can never pick a bottom. The only thing I can do is tell you, is real estate expensive now or is it cheap now? Mm -hmm. If it's expensive, I want to sell it. If it's cheap, I want to buy it. Bam. And you just look back throughout history. You look at the uh, inflation adjusted prices and it's, it's very easy to do. It's just, it, it takes patience. Yeah. And uh, sometimes that's probably the thing that's most difficult. But I, I learned that quickly. So that's why I got into real estate investing in 2012. Mm -hmm. And another lesson there is usually, uh, in fact, every single time I've made the most money with my investments, it's when people tell me I'm crazy for doing it. Mm -hmm. That's so kind of the litmus test, and especially with uh, Colombian real estate. Mm -hmm. You know, when I started investing there in 2015, everybody told me i was absolutely out of my mind what you're investing in real estate in colombia yeah, yeah, and pablo places. escobar and you're gonna <laughs> get kidnapped and all these things you know and uh of course i just made a, ki a killing down there and that but they did the same thing when i was investing in real estate in the u.s in 2012 mm -hmm. you know because you guys are, are very young but i'm sure you probably remember that prices peaked out in 2006 yeah, and yeah. they went down every single year to 2012. Yep. So people have recency bias, right? So if prices have gone down the last five years, people just assume that prices are going to continue to go down mm -hmm. for the next five years. Just like if prices go up for five years, they think prices are going up for the next 500 years. Yep. And that's usually not what happens. So that was another example. But then, um, like I said, I started investing in 2012 here in the US. Then I kind of took that skill set that I learned to Columbia because the returns were a lot better. And um, to make a long story short, I'd gotten into macros. I was obsessed with it. I mean, this is what I was doing eight hours a day, just listening to podcasts and listening to audio books. On and, macros. On macroeconomics and, macroeconomics and investing. Can you tell the people, yeah. can you define macroeconomics for the people just so they kind of understand? It's really tough. It's, it's not the textbook definition. It's just trying to figure out how the global economy works and then what that means for probabilities of certain asset classes. Yeah. And um, I mean, that's kind of a broad definition, but also too, what most uh, economists get wrong, whether they're from the Keynesian school of economics or the Austrian school is they don't understand money and they don't understand how dollars are mm -hmm. created. So uh, that, that would actually be a good thing to talk about here. Yeah, we're definitely going to talk about that as well. Yeah. Cause your audience really needs to understand that. And pretty much no one does because if they can understand that then they can make much better financial decisions for the future, regardless of whether they're interested in real estate, cryptocurrency, mm -hmm. gold, stocks, bonds, it, it does, or even foreign investing. Yeah. And guys, we're going to talk about all these things for today's show. I'm really excited. <laughs> so don't worry. Wait, guys, some... take notes because in here is pretty bright. Like your future. If you listen to this, <laughs> today. So there you go. So, um, <laughs> like this, um, so can you give us a little bit of background? Um, obviously, you're, very, you're fairly risk tolerant. You know, you're striking and making things happen. Can you yep. tell us a little bit about your background? Where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to school? Yeah, well, I grew up in Portland, Oregon. Okay. And I almost flunked out of high school. And uh, I mean, Wait, how? I, oh, I was terrible in school. <laughs> terrible. Terrible. I was always debate with the teachers. <laughs> I'd always get in trouble. I'd always get in arguments with them. Oh, you, I think my senior year, my senior year, I remember it well. 
I, I needed uh, to pass. I was in four classes that I, I needed to be in four classes for, uh, for athletics, right? And, uh, but I only needed two classes to graduate. So I got two Ds and two Fs. I remember my, my, my GPA, my final semester in high school was like a 0. 0.5. Wow. My mom would have beat my ass. <laughs> yeah. Wow. But I just, I always hated school. And I've never taken an econ class. I've never taken a finance class. I've never taken a business class. Wow. And uh, I was a self-made millionaire by 34. Nice. And I retired at the oh. age of 38. Jeez. So uh, my point there for your audience is if I can do it, uh, anybody can do it, really. Mm -hmm. It's not just, uh, you know, making money with uh, as an entrepreneur, but it's also investing and making money that way as well. So never think that, uh, you know, you, you listen to the people talk on CNBC and sometimes they use kind of an industry language. So you think, oh, I could never do that. I could never, you know, be at that high of a level. Uh, don't kid yourself. Most of your audience right now listening mm -hmm. has a higher intelligence than most of the talking heads on CNBC. Wow. Yeah. Um, so uh, where'd you go to school? Did you, did you you have a bachelor's degree in? Yeah, I went to Grand Canyon University. Uh -huh. So and same thing there. I got horrible grades, barely got through. I actually went there on a scholarship. And that was the only way I could get into college. Yeah. My <laughs> grades were absolutely terrible. An athletic scholarship. Gotcha. And because you're really tall. You're like taller than me. Like what? You're six five? Six four. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. I'm six three. I, I'm like, oh, damn, this guy's tall, man. Yeah, he's yeah. pretty tall. man. Yeah. yeah. No, I actually went there on a golf scholarship. Okay. What? Yeah. Division one? uh though well, we played a lot of d1 tournaments okay but the school is not d1 d2 uh i don't even know what division we were i didn't even Grand. know golf was in uh and and nca so yeah yeah no 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 nca sorry guys yeah that was a long time ago guys that, that was mid 90s so god damn bro <laughs> you're taking me way way back <laughs> you're taking me way back way back so what got you after school into like i guess investing and learning about how to be an entrepreneur yeah, yeah like how'd you even yeah how'd you get there like did you start a business right there and then after school or did yeah. you like work go into corporate america and say fuck this or how no no, you... no 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 uh so what i was doing is uh uh, when I got out of school, I'm like, okay, well, what the hell am I going to do now? And I remember a lot of my buddies would always borrow my shirts in college. Mm -hmm. I was like, you know, you got some cool shirts. So I'm like, well, you know, all my buddies are are borrowing my shirts. So maybe if I made my own shirts, I could sell them. This was probably, you know, 1998, 99, something like that. So back then, like a website, like, wow, you got a website. So I'm like, maybe I'll build my own website and I actually sell them online. I know it sounds hilarious. Uh, today but back then that was kind of a novel idea yeah <laughs> so, so building an app today yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. so yeah. i started uh designing my own t-shirts and so i didn't have any money you know this I is fresh out of college yeah yeah okay yeah i didn't have what you, what you get your degree in and pr yeah, okay it was just a it was a bs was okay a of course major yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but you went for free so it don't matter well it was a, it was a partial scholarship oh, partial? Okay. yeah the 50 percent scholarship but uh anyway uh so i started designing these t-shirts and then I built my own website and then I needed a way to fund it because I didn't have any money at all. I mean, I was just, just totally broke. Mm -hmm. And so I got a job uh, working valet in Vegas, uh, the graveyard shift. So what I do is I had four tens. So I'd work at uh, from 10 o'clock at night to eight o'clock in the morning. So a 10 hour shift, four mm -hmm. days a week. Damn. So then I was at the nugget. And so I'd take all my tip money and I'd invest that into my business. So I'd leave, you know, the job. And, and also another cool thing is back then they let you eat for free, even if you were off shift, if you're on property. Mm. So I'd go in an hour early, eat, I'd eat on my break. And then I would eat when I get off work. So I'd eat all three meals 
and I could take all that money that I was saving on food and invest it into the hey, t-shirt. Wow. <laughs> the finesse. And we, and we talk about this uh, life hack so much because uh, me and Fresh also came from, you know, working. I was uh, in law enforcement with the government. Yeah. And he was doing tech. So we were able to kind of take our money that we made from our jobs to invest it in the studio and buy equipment and everything. And at some point, you know, we're able to finally like, okay, we're in a position now where we can walk away from our jobs. With mm-hmm. me, it was a little bit more reluctant because I did enjoy my job, but they kind of forced my hand. And thank God I had saved that money just like you're talking about now. And I was like, you know what? It's going to be a little uncomfortable, but we'll be able to make it. And, you know, thankfully, the um, the risk paid off. But no, yeah. I, I like that. So you basically, so you, how long did you do that before you like went out onto your own? Well, I, I boy, I can't saving remember. that money that so long ago, maybe nine months, something like that. Oh, so okay. I wasn't saving yes. the money. I was actually taking the tip money and investing it directly into the business yeah. and trying to buy more shirts and yeah. go to more boutiques and sell more T-shirts and, yeah. you know, uh, do the, the photography for the website and even buying hang tags for the shirt. Mm-hmm. I remember that was an expense that, uh, you know, I was like, where the hell am I going to get the money for this? So it was uh, it was quite an ordeal, but it, of course I lost a ton of money. Yeah, I didn't make any money, but it really teaches you a lot Experience. of lessons. Yeah, that's right. That I was able to learn and uh, apply to businesses that actually were successful later on in the future. But having that mindset to take that money and put it into your business rather than put it into like shopping or going partying is very important. Because no, that, that was the whole reason I got the job. Mm. So it started with the business, mm. and then I thought to myself, how can I fund this business because I need to work during the day. So that's why I tried to get a job as a valet because I could, I knew I could work the graveyard shift. Mm. So it started with this saying, okay, here's my business. How can I fund it? And then going from there. Wow. So uh, I'll hit some of these super chats real quick, guys. Um, Chris, we, we got one, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, guys. So like the video first and foremost, well, we because got we, we got some great stuff that we're going to be talking about today, guys. Um, two bucks from Tutoro. Any episodes or advice about trucking? Uh, gracias. Uh, maybe we'll t- hit that at the end, guys. And we will do a Q and A at the end. Yeah. Uh, so don't worry. Get your questions in now. Chris is gonna make a note of them. Drew, shout out to FNF. No, shout out to F. Uh, yeah, Drew for twenty bucks. Shout out to FNF for bringing us this knowledge. Hit that like button. Absolutely. Uh, Acido Rusco goes, fellow rebel capitalist. Thanks for getting the main man GG on. Hope to see y'all in Miami for RCL three. <laughs> there you Five go. Bucks. Rebel capitalist live. All right. Uh, Ariel, <laughs> ye- okay. I'm gonna butcher. I'm just gonna say Ariel. Ten bucks. Thank you so much, uh, Mr. K. Been following George since 2020. So much valuable content. Happy he's on. Uh, ha- hashtag rebel capitalist. Five bucks for Venom. It's so bright in that room, fresh looking like a silhouette. <laughs> and then Baki Onigiri, uh, Team Gold Bullion and Team Crypto, which is uh, actually, you know what? So that's actually a perfect segue into the next topic. So I know you talk about, uh, you know, the market is always changing and it's volatile yeah, right yeah. now, et cetera. Um, and I know there's different types of asset classes, right, that we can get into to help us hedge against. Well, I guess what we could talk about, let's talk about the market in general, what's going on inflation and then i guess we can go into the different asset classes people can get into to protect themselves that'd be different. yeah okay, yeah so, you so. know there when we first got into uh you guys call it the beer bug uh, when, yes. when i first was dealing with it i was calling it the cerveza sickness uh because you guys know what youtube would do back in of course yeah. yeah um but when we oh. were going into the cerveza sickness you know i started talking about this in january 2020 and that, hey, this is something we really need to pay attention to. And I oh, so you predicted, predicted it back then? Oh, yeah. Before, because here uh, we closed uh, everything down around early March. No, I was talking about lockdowns. I was talking about uh, the global police state. I was talking about, uh, you know, them shutting down the Olympics. I was Now, I was talking to friends of mine, uh, such as Chris Martinson. So I got to give him all the credit. Okay. And Eric Townsend, who runs a podcast called Macro Voices. Mm-hmm. And another good buddy of mine, Chris Irons, who runs the QTR podcast, which I'm sure a lot of your 
uh, listeners are familiar with. So these guys were all talking about it. I was listening to them and thinking through it myself, going over the actual real science and saying, okay, this is something that we should be paying attention to. Mm-hmm. And, you know, ironically enough, you know, everyone is calling me a tinfoil hatter, the same people now <laughs> that call me a tinfoil hatter for being against uh, mandates and whatnot, you know, we'll just kind of leave it at that to keep it YouTube friendly. Um, but uh, back then I was saying that, you know, from a standpoint of society, uh, I was using that quote from Lenin where he said, there's decades that go by that nothing happens. And there's weeks that go by where decades happen. Mm, I like that. And I think that uh, during 2020 and 2021, we've lived through that from a standpoint of society. But in 2022, we're going to live through that from an economic standpoint. Because we have had a a lowering of interest rates, an interest rate environment where interest rates are progressively lower since 1981. You know, we've gone from about 18% interest rates, and that's the Fed funds overnight rate, down to 0%. And now the Federal Reserve, as most of your listeners know just by watching the news, they're talking about increasing interest rates two, three, maybe four times this year. But it's not just about increasing interest rates, because what they've also been doing is something called quantitative easing. Mm. So what this is, is they're just creating bank reserves, which are the Fed's form of dollars, and they're buying treasuries and mortgage-backed securities from the banking system. And so this is increasing the size of their balance sheet. It it does a few different things. It increases the balance sheet or the ability for banks to lend more. I'll just leave it at that. Uh, But what it's also done is it's created the stock market to go up and up and up in this environment, really, from a psychological standpoint, where the stock market continues to go up. Is that why we had some of the highs during the pandemic? With the stock market? Oh, yeah. Because, because of so, this quantitative yeah, easing? Yeah. Well, what happened when the market was really going down, if you guys remember that in March of 2020? Yes, I do. Yes. Yeah. The Fed had an, a meeting scheduled for a Wednesday. I can't remember the exact date, but they had an emergency meeting the Sunday prior because the market was just absolutely falling out of bed. So during that Sunday in the emergency meeting, they dropped rates all the way down to zero again. And they said, okay, we're going to do $120 billion of quantitative easing every single month. So this is the Damn. Fed intervening in the marketplace to the tune of 120 billion a month. So that that's a big deal, right? And so then what they says we're also going to guarantee a trillion dollars a day, a day, one trillion dollars a day in something called the repo market. Mm-hmm. So we don't need to go into that, but the repo market is like the plumbing of the financial system. Okay. So they're backstopping the entire system, the entire global economy, basically. Wow. Uh, so. Now what they're talking about doing is something called tapering. So you guys might have heard that where the Fed came out November 3rd of 2021 and they announced that they would start tapering. So what that means is they've been doing 120 billion worth of quantitative easing every single month. They're going to start ratcheting that down. So they go from 120 down to 105 down to 85 down and I'm not sure where they are now you know maybe 50 or 60 something like that so I just got into the stock market myself um obviously nowhere near that level so just so I can understand and for the people out there too guys get your notebooks out because I'm learning myself and I'm taking notes so you guys should as well so um so is quantitative easing from I guess in relation to the stock market and what happened before is it them essentially putting money into the into the market to just help it continue to go grow not, not or? really it, okay. it's more of Keep a cycle it yeah so what we to make it easy i think let's imagine that you're a bank like yes. jp morgan uh-huh. and uh, let's just say i'm the federal reserve so we both have a balance sheet we've got assets and liabilities on our balance sheet you've got assets and liabilities on your balance yes. sheet so you have a checking account with me jp morgan 
or Goldman Sachs or Wells Fargo or whomever you bank with, mm-hmm. you know, most likely. Chase Wells Fargo. Yeah, Chase. They're going to have a bank Trash. account, like a checking account with the Fed. Yeah. So those dollars are actually a liability of the Federal Reserve, just like your dollars that you have in your account are a liability of your bank. Okay. It's just a, a record of how many dollars they owe you. You know, there's not green pieces of paper sitting in your account with Chase Bank. Exactly. It's yep. just them saying, Myron, we owe you a million dollars, you know, because you have a million dollars in your checking account, let's say. So that's an asset on your balance sheet. That's a liability on the bank's balance sheet. Well, because they're responsible for holding it. Well, they're they're not even holding it. I mean, that's we'll, true. We'll they're lending it. it out all over the place. But so they're that's not even why doing that. They're it's hard to take out a million dollars out of the bank because they don't have it there. It's kind of like you have to request it for them to get the money to you. Like if you want to pull up a million dollars, like Grant Cardone, for yeah. example. That's correct. So we'll go over that in a moment. Just write down. We like to talk about how money is created because it's very important. How money is what? Created. created. Okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah, or here. destroyed because it's very, very few people understand that. If your audience can just learn that one thing today, they're going to be ahead of 99.9%. If it ties into this, feel free to elaborate. Guys, you hear that? Listen, <laughs> listen up well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, if it ties in, feel free to elaborate. Well, let's go over it. Let's stick with quantitative easing. Okay. So. Uh, what the Federal Reserve will do, because they, you know, your checking account is J.P. Morgan, is at the Federal Reserve. So now let's say that you, on your balance sheet, you own a billion dollars of treasuries. Okay. Okay. So I say, okay, J.P. Morgan, I want to buy those treasuries from you. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to deposit a billion dollars into your checking account that you have with me at the Federal Reserve. And then you're going to go ahead and sell me those treasuries. So the only thing that really happens is you just trade your treasuries for dollars. That's all you're doing. Mm -hmm. So effectively what that does for the banks is it allows them to lend or create more loans in the real economy. But if the banks don't create more loans in the real economy, then it doesn't do anything. Mm -hmm. The banks still have to decide to do something. The Fed could do a trillion dollars a day in quantitative easing, and it really wouldn't make any difference if the banks said, yeah, we're just going to lend the same amount. We're just it's not going to make a difference. Now, from a psychological standpoint, it makes a huge difference because the marketplace sees this and they see that as being bullish. Oh, the Fed is printing money or the Fed, you know, you hear that all the time, or the Fed is creating liquidity. The Fed is backstopping the banks. The Fed is doing this. The Fed is, there's a Fed put, they say, mm-hmm. but it basically means the Fed's going to come in. They're not going to let the stock market crash. Yeah. So therefore you're going to go buy stocks. You're going to buy the riskiest stocks. You're going to go what they say. You go out the risk curve, which just means you take more and more and more risk. Why not take more risk to get a higher return? If you think the Fed's got your back. And the Fed's going to backstop it. And they're only going to let the market go down by 10 or 15%. And then they're going to come in and they're going to keep doing whatever they need to do to prop it up. That's the idea, right? So technically, it doesn't do anything, but psychologically, it really does, right? Mm. So then what this, now we can get into how much people from being scared to spend money, essentially. Yeah. I mean, yeah. A, another good example is uh, some of your viewers might know this back going back to March of 2020, uh, the Fed came in and they backstopped the corporate debt market. So what they did is they said, and they're not supposed to do that. That's totally illegal, Uh, but that's a whole separate topic. So they said, we're gonna come in and backstop junk, what they call junk debt or high yield debt, corporate bond market. And what happened is as soon as they made that announcement, they didn't even have to do anything. And the prices of the bonds went way up and the yields, the interest rates went way down, right? Because there's an inverse relationship between the two. And the Fed ended up only buying about a billion dollars worth of corporate debt, which sounds like a lot to us, 
but for how much corporate debt is actually out there, that's just not. Did they a buy it from the from corporations that were too big to fail, essentially? Uh, oh yeah, it's okay. all, it's all a, a buddy system. Of course, you know you're talking about the Cantillon effect. So uh, the Fed is going to bail out the people who they like the best, or you know who who Jerome Powell had dinner with, you know, last week, or whatever. <laughs> that's yeah. how that's how the whole system works. They yeah. did that through a, a big company, I believe, it was with BlackRock. The Fed didn't do it directly. They set up what they call a special purpose vehicle. But my point there is, it was just all psychological. Yep. Right. So now what's happening is they're doing that tapering. So that's psychologically the market's like, oh, we don't like that because now the Fed's saying that they don't have our back. Mm -hmm. So if you notice back to November 3rd, where the Fed announced tapering, you know, they're still doing QE. They're just less and less and less. Mm -hmm. You know, what's the market done? It's become very volatile. And you'll notice that the NASDAQ has really gone down. Yes. Maybe disproportionately. That's the reason yeah. why I got into the stock market in the first place was because it was crashing. Uh, and yeah. this is, the, I guess, one of the worst ones since the pandemic, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. So, and then Kathy Wood's fund has really gone down. That's kind of a proxy on, on tech stocks. And then Bitcoin also yeah. Has, yeah. has really gone down. You know, uh, I'm not sure what percentage, but it got down almost uh, under 30,000, yes. maybe a few yeah. weeks it's ago. It's back up now, but yeah, it did go, it definitely did like go down significantly. Yeah, but what you'll notice is it's back up, but so is the NASDAQ. So Bitcoin is kind of, as of right now, kind of tied to the hip. Ideally, Bitcoin would be a non correlated asset. Yeah. Right. But what we've seen is it's actually behaving as a correlated asset to mm. risk assets, mainly the NASDAQ. So, you know, I'm very bullish Bitcoin as an example long term, but I wouldn't add to my position until I see that decoupling with the price of Bitcoin compared to the NASDAQ. Mm. Because that's when you know it's, it's a better time to buy, because that means all the people that don't understand Bitcoin or have just bought it to get rich, they've already sold. And the people who really understand Bitcoin, they're the only buyers left. And for me, that's when I want to add to my position, you know. But before I get too sidetracked, let's go back to money creation because that's yeah. very important. So mm -hmm. when we were talking about quantitative easing, we were talking about me being the Federal Reserve with my balance sheet and you being JP Morgan. Well, let's just say that you represent the commercial banking system in aggregate total. Okay. Right. So all banks. I do. Yeah. Okay. Your balance sheet. Okay. So uh, what, what you do is you go to a customer and they come and say, hey, I've got this incredible, you know, our, our good buddy, Kenny McElroy, we're mm -hmm. talking about him or Kiyosaki, you know, okay. same thing. Shout out to Kiyosaki. That's right. Robert. <laughs> and, uh, hey, Kenny McElroy. Yeah. So they say, we got this incredible deal. We're going to build this apartment complex in Austin, Texas and bank. We need a hundred million dollars. So the bank says, Kenny, we've done business with you before. We know you're good for it. You know, let's, let's do it. So that hundred million that they give Kenny, that's new money that didn't exist before. People think that's existing money, like other people's money that they just give to Ken. That's not how it works. That's money that, that did not exist before. So the total money stock or the amount of dollars, let's say, that are circulating in the real economy just went up by a hundred million dollars. Yeah. Okay. Now, if, if Kenny just say the very next day, he's, oh, that deal went through. We don't need the hundred million. I'm just going to pay you right back. Now the total money supply has gone down by a hundred million dollars. So what, what I'm trying to get at here and what people need to realize <laughs> the commercial banks are in charge of how many dollars are circulating in the real economy. You know, people like to think that the central banks are central, but they're not. Uh, Jerome Powell does not control the dollar. Jamie Dimon controls the dollar, meaning the banksters control the amount of dollars. The central bankers do not. 
Okay. The and the, these guys are, pro, I'm assuming, prominent bankers. These guys. Jamie Dimon. Okay. Yeah. 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 He he's the CEO of uh, of J P Morgan. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Which is the biggest bank in the United States, if I'm not mistaken. One of them. One of them. Okay. Yeah. So we could just say the banksters. You know, the guys that are in charge of the banks, they're the ones that really control the dollar. It's not Jerome Powell and the in the Federal Reserve. So so let me get this straight, just so I can uh, kind of uh, understand it. So there's money when the money gets printed. It goes to the bank and the bank loans that money out. Well, the money's lent into exit, right? So what happens first and foremost is they've got uh, bank reserves at the Fed, okay? So then what they'll do, but they, in all honesty, they really don't even need the bank reserves. Okay. Uh, I don't want to get too technical, but they, it's just really on the, the balance sheet of the commercial banks. If they see someone who they think <laughs> is a good, uh, is, a, is credit worthy and they can make money on the loan. They're going to give them the money mm -hmm. and uh, they're creating that money out of thin air. That, okay. that, that money did yeah. not exist. So the banks literally print money. They, they're the ones that create the money. It's not the central bank. Oh, it's okay. The commercial banks. So it's not. Okay. So because we're over here thinking they're over at the U.S. Mint just printing a lot of money. Blah, no, blah, blah. Uh -uh. So it's really the banks That's that right. are the ones that are responsible for 40% of the you know currency in circulation right now. That's right. So I know the other day, I think I heard you say a bomb drop, on one of your uh, podcasts or something like that, that the amount of M2 money supply has increased by 25% in 2020 alone. Yes. And that's correct. That's yeah. a correct statement. But that's not a result of the Fed uh, you know, doing quantitative easing. That's a result of the it, one of two things. Either the banks creating all those additional dollars that could be one way mm -hmm. or now we're kind of in this weird type of hybrid system right mm -hmm. so the way that works is if the government comes in and says okay we want to deficit spend so remember back in uh, 2020 when they did the cares act yes you guys remember that yeah and our deficit was about five trillion dollars so the U.S. and the CARES Act is when we, they were given the stimulus checks. and PPP. that's the stimulus checks, guys. Yeah. Uh, is, is what Stimmy pack, yeah, stimmy yeah, packs. Because so. I remember they sent one out, I think, for like sixteen or eighteen hundred dollars, and they sent another one out for like twelve hundred. Oh, like that. And they did a child tax credit. They okay. did. Uh, they did another thing where you know they wouldn't let landlords evict their tenants. Yes, so the yeah, tenants, moratorium. Uh, yeah, and then they had a a mortgage payment forbearance program and whatnot. Uh, there was a lot of programs that they had, but it was just basically what's called stimmies, you know. Okay. And it wasn't all five trillion, but they they had five trillion in deficit spend. So what that means is the government is spending five trillion dollars more than they're taking in in tax receipts. So to make that very easy for your audience, let's say that you guys, uh, that one, someone in your audience on the live stream right now makes $100,000 a year, mm -hmm. okay? Well, if they spend $200,000 in a year, they have to borrow $100,000 because they spent 100,000 above and beyond what they made. Mm. That's deficit spending. Gotcha. Right? Borrowing so, more money when you already owe money. Well, it, it's, it's, it's spending more money than you earn. Actually. And therefore, you've got to borrow okay. a difference to spend. Okay. Right? So you're only making a hundred grand a year, but you spend two hundred two hundred a year. Okay. So where are you going to get that extra hundred? You got to borrow it. Exactly. Put it on a credit card as an example. Yeah. That's a good way to look at it. Okay. So what the government does is say, okay, we got to do this CARES Act, so we're going to spend an extra five trillion dollars. Right. So where are we going to get that? Well, um, you know, the Fed comes in and says, well, you know, we, we'll go ahead and buy those bonds. That's the quantitative easing that I was talking about. So what's interesting about that is when the fed is buying the treasuries from the treasury itself and it's kind of they don't buy them directly it's kind of a shell game but we'll just assume that they're buying them directly from 
the treasury. So that's Janet Yellen. You know, she's issuing the debt. She's issuing the treasuries because she needs the money to spend the stimmies. Okay. And is she okay. the, um, the treasury uh, secretary? The tre- okay. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. Yeah. She's in charge of the, the treasury for the federal government. Yep. So she's like, well, I need $5 trillion. So I've got to issue $5 trillion worth of, worth of treasuries, worth of bonds, worth of debt, right? So usually the market would buy those bonds. So let's just say that the three of us represent the market. Mm-hmm. So you represent corporations. Mm-hmm. I represent the average Joe and Jane. And maybe you represent uh, the banks mm-hmm. or pension funds, something like that. So what happens is if Janet Yellen says, hey, here's $5 trillion worth of, of debt, guys, or IOUs, treasuries, and the three of us buy all $5 trillion, okay, what's happening is those dollars are coming out of the system mm-hmm. because we're paying her our existing dollars. And then Janet Yellen is taking those dollars and then she's spending them back into the economy through, let's just say, uh, PPP or uh, stimmies. Let's just say all $5 trillion were stimmies. So we send her $5 trillion. She gives us the treasuries, right? Just basically say the treasuries that we have that say the government owes us this amount plus, plus principal. We're basically lending our money to the treasury yeah. or to the federal government. Then she takes the $5 trillion and she writes $5 trillion stimmy checks. Yeah. Those stimmy checks go out. The people that receive the stimmy checks deposit those checks into their bank. And now all of a sudden, those $5 trillion are back in the economy. Mm. right so you take the dollars out of the economy because it goes to the treasury then the treasury spends the money back into the economy so on net balance there's still the same amount of dollars right here's the difference with the fed when that when the fed buys it what do they use to buy those from janet yellen because they use bank reserves that they create out of thin air Mm. nowhere these dollars don't exist so the fed just says okay now we're going to print up five trillion dollars and Janet Yellen, we're going to just deposit them into your account. So now you've got the $5 trillion. And Janet Yellen says, thank you very much, Jerome Powell. Now I'm going to take the $5 trillion stimmy checks and I'm going to send them out. Same thing, right? And then those people get the $5 trillion of stimmy checks. They deposit it into their bank accounts. But see, now what's happened is Janet Yellen didn't take the dollars out of the economy to begin with. You see, because she, she come from the market. Yeah. No, the, the, was, the Fed bottom. Okay. So when the Fed buys the treasuries, they create new, basically dollars that didn't exist Out of thin before. air. Out of thin air. You got it. Digits. That's okay. right. So when she's buying them from us, she's taking existing dollars. Yep. When she buys them, when she uh, sells them to the Fed, she's, they're creating new dollars. Okay. Right. Because the Fed doesn't have any dollars. All they do is just go to a, uh, literally they go to a computer. And let's, because Janet Yellen, just like JP Morgan, the treasury has an account with the Fed. That's where their checking account is. It's okay. called the treasury general account. Okay. So if, if, uh, if the treasury, or excuse me, if the Fed buys 5 trillion worth of treasuries from Janet Yellen, all they do literally is go to their computer and just t- go to their account and type in five zero 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 trillion dollars. They just add 5 trillion to their account balance. What's the long-term goal you think for the Fed? Well, I, I now I think it's to prop up asset prices because see what's happened, it, unfortunately, is the U.S. economy has has been really built and is dependent upon asset bubbles. So you know, before we were recording, or maybe that was right at the beginning, you guys were asking me kind of what my my strategy is for investing. Yeah, I said really, I just like to buy things when they're cheap. 
and sell them when they're expensive. But uh, I don't think there's anyone on the live stream right now that would argue and say that uh, uh, that share prices are cheap or real estate is cheap. Absolutely not. Yeah. It's wildly expensive. <laughs> Especially now. Yeah. So it's, it, I mean, the prices right now for homes, as an example, are higher than they were in 2006. Yeah. So if we're in a bubble then, how could we not be in a bubble now? And that's even when you adjust for inflation. So what's happened, unfortunately, is our entire economy has been built around asset bubbles. And the Fed knows this. So they have to keep those asset bubbles inflated. They have to keep blowing air into those bubbles mm. because they know that if they let those bubbles burst, then the entire economy will come down with it, right? I mean, let me, let's just do a quick thought experiment here, right? Okay. So I always use the example of like a school teacher in California. Let's say this school teacher is making like 50 or 60 grand a year back in like 2012. And she or he goes out and they, they buy a house for 250 grand. And so this is at the bottom of the market. You guys know how depressed it was. So they buy this house for 250 grand. Well, now let's say there it's uh, 2022 and that house is now worth, let's say, uh, 2.25 million. Right. Well, did that school teacher produce any more goods and services? Did, was she no. any more productive? Did she even work an extra hour? No. no. But all of a sudden, she's got $2 million in additional purchasing power, right? Mm. Well, she's going to cash out of that house. She's going to go over, and with 400000 maybe she's going to buy a house in Phoenix. So that employs the general contractor over there. That employs the bankers. That employs the real estate agent. Then she's going to take the other, let's say she's got $1.5 that's left over. Then she's going to go ahead and spend that money over here and spend that money over here. And in an economy that's 70% consumer spending, yes. you see how that trickles down to the entire economy yeah. and supports it, right? Yeah. Now, let's just assume for a moment that instead of uh, the house going from 250000 up to $2.25 million, let's say that it went down in price yeah. by 200000 Well, where would all that additional spending go? It's gone. It's gone. So then what would all happen to the jobs? What would happen to the real estate agents? What would happen to the contractors? What would happen to the restaurants where she would have spent money? What would happen to the daycare where she would have spent money? What would happen to the real estate market in Phoenix? You see all these, these uh, what we call knock-on effects, right? Mm -hmm. So you can imagine what would happen in aggregate total right now if the stock market went down by 50% and the housing market went down by 50%. What do you think the economy would do? What do you think the unemployment rate would do? Mm -hmm. I mean, let's just go back to 2020. Right in March, the unemployment rate went up almost to 20 percent. 20 percent. That's insane. You know, you were talking to me about this place that you guys lease uh -huh. and how easy it was and how cheap it was yes. back in 2020. Yeah. OK, well, what do you think would have happened if the Fed would not have stepped in, if the government would have stepped in with the CARES Act and the stock market would have gone down by 50 percent and would have stayed there, would not have recovered? You know, you could have just renegotiated this lease at probably half the price mm -hmm. that you paid in 2020. Yeah. You know, you go to, I'm sure now it's very difficult to get a, a table at a restaurant or when you guys go to one of your nightclubs, I'm sure bottle service is twice as expensive yeah. as it was in 2020. I can promise Miami's you. Miami's been exploding. They're flourishing. Yeah. yeah. Bottle service would be like a hundred bucks yeah. <laughs> right now. Yo, I'm yeah. seeing people pop bottles like every almost second bro it's like crazy and that's because and that's why because it's all crypto yeah it's because they've made a ton in crypto they made a ton in real estate or they've made a ton in stocks yeah right have they produced any more have they produced any more goods and services and the reason i harp on that so much and this is another idea that i think would be valuable for your audience to understand is wealth has nothing to do with money nothing 
absolutely zero. Wealth is goods and services. It's, it's a society's ability to produce goods and services efficiently. Let me give you an example. Let's say that you're stranded on a deserted island and you've got a chest full of a billion dollars <coughs> or a, a, a billion dollars worth of gold, anything. You name the asset, right? But all you have are a couple coconuts, some sand and some salt water, mm -hmm. right? Are you rich or are you poor? In that context, poor. You're poor. Yeah. Why? Because there's no goods and services. Mm -hmm. Money is, is, is nothing. It doesn't mean anything. Energy. What, what's, what's really valuable are the production of goods and services. That's why I always go back to that. And so when you think about the standard of living for a society, you can't think of it in terms of dollars. You've got to think of it in terms of productivity. Because at the end of the day, that's all that matters, right? So it's not that the first world countries have more money necessarily. It's that they have the strongest ability to create goods and services. That's right. That's what dictates GDP, not necessarily well, the money. I, would, I wouldn't say GDP. I'd say standard of living. Standard of living. Okay. Yeah, because GDP can go like Venezuela probably has the highest growing Venezuela uh, GDP of all time, but that it's hyperinflation, right? Yeah. So <laughs> you, you, it's about real GDP, which just means GDP adjusted for the rate of inflation. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. And I guess that's what makes China so goddamn powerful. Yeah, you because know, another, they're offering all kinds of services yeah. and products and, and, and infrastructure as well. Yeah, yes. they produce a lot of stuff, so they would be rich. You know, they would be a creditor nation. Uh, Japan uh, as well as a creditor nation, oh. although their government debt is huge. But you know, another great example would be going back to communist Russia in like the 1950s. Uh, you guys probably don't. You know, I wasn't even alive then, but I'm sure maybe in some of your history classes you saw those old black and white pictures of like a Soviet, Russia, a Soviet Russia, where there's like standing in line for four hours to get a loaf of bread. Mm -hmm. And they all kind of look destitute yes. and, and poor. You know, they're all wearing the same shoes and stuff like that. And they could barely afford, they could barely turn on the heat in their house and whatnot. And as Americans, we think that's because they didn't have any money. That's not the case. They all had money. They all had a lot of money. And the unemployment rate was incredibly low. It was like maybe 1% in communist Russia. The mm. problem was there was no stuff. Bam. Mm. There was no stuff, right? So then we look at the, the, the Great Depression here in the United States, yeah. right? Well, why was the Great Depression bad? It's because people didn't have money, but the net result was still the same, that we had the stuff, but they didn't have access to stuff. See, that's really key. And in Venezuela right now, you know, we were talking about that hyperinflation. What's the problem there? What the real problem? The problem is they don't have access to stuff. So whether you don't have the, the, the dollars, whether you don't have the stuff, or whether you're like Venezuela and your economy is so destroyed that you can't produce stuff, the net result is all the same. And that means the standard of living is decreasing. But for your audience, you know, if they're th looking at something that's going on in the economy or a policy from uh, the administration, let's say mandates, and we won't say what mandates we're talking about to keep it YouTube friendly, but mm -hmm. everyone knows what I'm talking about. Right? <laughs> yeah. when, when you say, okay, every business with over 100 employees needs to do X, Y, and Z. Now, when you're thinking about that strictly through terms of economics, you've got to ask yourself, is are we going to produce more goods and services as a result of this or less? And if the answer is we're going to produce less, that means by definition, society in general is going to become poorer and our standard in, of living in aggregate total is going to go down. And unfortunately, that disproportionately affects the poor and middle class the most. So wow. the feds are getting money out of thin air 
without any productivity being done and just giving it to us. Well, the, your, your kind, the concept is right. Mm-hmm. Basically, what's happening is the uh, Americans have, have you know, lived beyond their means, so to speak, uh, because of asset prices going up. And that goes back to the, one of the main reasons of the dollar being the world reserve currency. You know, we could talk about that as well and how that affects markets. But that's allowed people to consume more than they produce. And if you just take that to its logical conclusion, that doesn't end well. Yes, yeah, because right? that means we're living on debt. And we yeah, owe, we owe that, a lot of money, a lot of money. And, and asset We're on borrowed prices. time right now, it seems That's like. That's right. So, what ha- so you can just think of a very simple economy that I use in like my whiteboard videos. Yeah. And I just say, okay, there's a farmer that grows corn, another one that grows cattle or whatever, and another one that grows wheat. Right? What they have to do is they have to produce more than they consume. So if they produce more than they consume, that means that someone else in the economy doesn't have to produce wheat. They can just get it from the farmer. Yeah. So that means that they can be a school teacher. Bam. They can be a doctor. They can be an engineer. They can do a podcast. Yep. You, know, you guys can do your podcast right here because you don't have to produce food. Yes. Because the farmers are producing more food than they are consuming. Right. But society has to do that at large. You can't have a society that's consuming more than they produce. Right. Or else who the hell's producing it? You say, well, the Chinese. Well, that's great. Well, what happens if they don't? You know, and then what are they doing with those dollars that we're sending them? They're buying our assets. So they're getting rich. We're getting poor. Mm. Right. And that's that's so. So when you're thinking of it in those terms, you know, you say, okay, well, if we've been consuming far more than we produce. And we could just go out to any nightclub, you know, as you were saying earlier here in Miami, and see people that are consuming far more than they produce crypto, or have produced. Crypto millionaires. Yeah, exactly. Just because their assets have gone up, whatever asset class that is, right? At some point in time, that has to come to an equilibrium, which means that the amount of consumption doesn't have to go back down to the level of production. It has The level of production has to exceed Bam. the rate of consumption because we've been over-consuming for so long. See, so if you think that we've been overconsuming, let's say since 1981, we have to underconsume and overproduce for the next 20 or 30 years to make up for that. And that's what the Fed and the government is trying to hold off right now. They're they're trying to make that go away. They're trying to kick that can down the road because that's an environment that makes the 1930s, the Great Depression, look like a picnic. Wow. wow. Holy shit. Damn, son, <laughs> where'd you find this? All right. <laughs> right. I'm going to read these chats real quick and get right back into it, man. I hope you guys enjoyed that right there. That was fire. Because that was probably one of the most in-depth explanations on how the market works with money. How money's created. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Um, where are we at, Chris? <laughs> uh, one second. <laughs> Hey guys, do me a quick favor while, while we pull this up. Like, like the, the video, video number one. Because channel. Nobody else has this kind of content. We teach you guys how to make money, teach you guys about finances in general, show you guys how to get girls, show you guys how to get in shape. Number one men's podcast for a reason. Shout out to George for giving all his value. And follow George as well. Yes. All his, his, his links are below, guys. I put his Twitter, his website, his YouTube, YouTube, Instagram. Everything is there. Check him out. So we got George Coquinos here. Uh, thoughts on AMC and GME going forward. What up, Fresh and Fit? Blessed content. All right, we'll make a note of that. Kendall Short, uh, Lender. Even with rates climbing, we cannot keep up uh, with demand for housing. New builds are too expensive, and the affordable homes are still in bidding wars. The RE market, real estate market, isn't crashing. Maybe a correction. Okay. Uh, and we're going to talk about real estate here in a second. I think that's going to yeah, be I'm the happy next topic. to discuss that because I'm sure that's probably most important or that's most applicable to most people. For sure. Yeah. Um, Cal, L. Cal L. Awesome to see George Gaming on the number one podcast in the world. The whiteboard breakdown videos on your YouTube channel are excellent. Yeah, I was, uh, dude. 
definitely. I was going to ask him, like, hey, did you want the whiteboard? I was like, hey, I have it pre-written. We don't have time for that. But maybe on the next one, guys. Uh, we got Johnny Sims. Thoughts on Divi Homes' uh, rent-to-own program as a way to get into real estate? Okay. We're going to talk about real estate here in a second. Estacada uh, Riches. Thoughts on Chinese debt, 100 trillion in real estate companies. Are you aware of Tether USDT uh, sure, being sure. basically digital fiat money and thus overinflating the crypto markets? We'll talk about that. Yep. Uh, Kendall Short Lender. Uh, George, we are definitely due for a correction or stabilization, but do you believe that we'll actually crash? RE has a history of always appreciating. True. Okay, Jose Perez. George, I just have one question. Is it safe? No, stiff drink stiff, time. Stiff drink time, yeah. Okay. I always say that on my whiteboard videos. <laughs> uh, and then Metab Malwa. Uh, hey, George, give FNF the Monopoly example that Preston Pish often gives. Love both your of your content. Yeah, Preston's then, great. Then Justin Del, Del Valle. Uh, hey, George, quick question. Got 800K sitting in a low-cost total market index fund, Vanguard. And uh, should I keep it all there or spread it elsewhere? I'm 27, by the way. Live in NY. Thanks. Okay, so make a note of those. So we'll get into real estate, guys. And some of these questions are probably going to get answered yeah. during the course of the show. Um, but we will definitely make sure all you guys get your stuff. So um, I guess we could transition over now. To... Yeah, maybe we could talk about 2022 and how your audience could maybe make some good, I hate to use the word prediction, mm -hmm. uh, but how they could assess the probabilities better. I always say there sure. are no certainties. There are only probabilities. Yeah. And we can talk about, I guess, maybe each asset class and what probability yeah. is what. Okay. So, yeah, so uh, what we could do is we could just go through kind of macro what may happen in 2022 mm -hmm. and then ask ourselves how that would affect each major asset. Perfect. Class. If you think that's better, let's, let's do go. it, baby. Yeah. So if we are to take the fed at their word, they're saying they're going to raise interest rates, let's say three times. So, well, first and foremost, they're going to reduce quantitative easing. Mm -hmm. Remember the tapering we were talking about? Yep. They're going to reduce that down to zero. Okay. And then they're going to start raising interest rates. So let's just say they raise interest rates three times in 2021. Which is what's kind of happening right now, right? If I'm not mistaken. Maybe well, they're just talking about it. Yeah. So if you want to know how dependent the market is on the psychology from the Fed, just look at what has happened to the market, especially risk assets, really risky, because NASDAQ, you figure, is maybe a little more risky than the S&P because mm -hmm. of those high growth you know, tech stocks. Look at what's happened since the Fed's just announced tapering and interest rates. They haven't even raised interest rates yet. They just made the announcement. Yeah, yeah. And we see all this massive yeah. volatility back and forth. What happens when they actually follow through and increase interest rates? And then the next thing that they're planning on is three things, tapering, raising interest rates, and something called quantitative tightening. So we talked about quantitative easing, right? That's where the Fed is buying the treasuries and the mortgage-backed securities from JP Morgan. Yep. But when they do quantitative tightening, it's the opposite. Now they're selling the, so they're reducing the cash that JP Morgan has at the Fed. And so they're trade, they're swapping back. See, initially we swap, I gave you dollars, JP Morgan, and you gave me your treasuries. Now I'm giving you your treasuries back and I'm reducing the amount of dollars that you have. Okay. Okay. So why this is a big deal is because if you look at the Fed, when they started quantitative easing, that was back in uh, 2008, 2009. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so the right after the the real estate crash, the GFC, yeah, the, the GFC, that's right. Okay. So the stock market, is, GFC is what great the global financial crisis. Yeah, okay. So uh, what happens is the stock market has pretty much stayed in lockstep with the Fed's balance sheet. So as they're doing quantitative easing, the stock market's going up. Now when they stopped doing quantitative easing back in 2017, 18. 17. Yeah. Uh, then you see the stock market kind of plateaus. Well, it's really followed the Fed's balance sheet. So if the Fed is reducing the size of their balance sheet, if they're doing quantitative tightening. That's going to put even more downward pressure on the stock market than just raising interest rates alone. 
So right. it's a Damn. it's a multi pronged. It's like a perfect situation. storm. Okay. It's like a perfect storm. You've got these asset prices or these stocks that are priced to perfection, right? The Facebooks of the world, these huge tech stocks that have that have very low earnings or profit relative to their share price, right? So they're priced for perfection, and they're priced for interest rates staying at zero percent, you know, the Fed funds rate for indefinitely into the future. That's how they're priced. So when that interest rate changes, then the price of the stock has to change as well. All right. Okay. So if we're if the Fed goes through with this, there's going to be tremendous downward pressure on the stock market. We know that. The, so you think it's going to get worse with the stock market if if they the Fed follows through. Okay. So then the question is, and what you know, the rebuttal from most people on your chat will be, okay, George, I get it. But what's going to happen is if the Fed raises rates and they see the stock market crashing, they're just going to say, just like March of 2020, oh, 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 sorry, sorry, sorry. Let's have that Sunday meeting again. Yeah, you got it. You got it. <laughs> you got it. They're going to say, oh, sorry. We, we were just joking. We yeah. were just joking. Uh, we'll go back to the quantitative easing thing. You got it. Yeah, okay. You got it. I'm learning here, it. guys. Okay, right. pay attention, just like me. That's right. <laughs> But see, the difference now, though, as you guys know, is inflation is very high. So we've got something yes. called the CPI, which is the Consumer Price Index. So that's, you know, you guys have noticed, I'm sure, when you've gone to the grocery store over the last couple of years. Food's up. Way up. Man, I'm buying blackberries. It's way more expensive now. Yeah. Actually, the can of soda at the uh, sushi spot was like, what, five or four bucks? Yeah. For a can of soda. Oh, everything. Used cars. Even, you know, the McLaren. That yeah. McLaren that, uh, that I bought when I was here last time. Yeah. Remember that? Uh, I went to take that into the dealership to sell it on consignment because I'm going to Columbia, so I'm having the dealer sell it. Mm -hmm. uh, it's it's they're pricing it forty thousand dollars higher. Yep. Than what I paid for it in call it April of uh, 2021. I believe know? it. So that's an example of uh, maybe not an example everyone can relate to, but that's an example of consumer prices going up. Right. So the the problem yeah. with that for the politicians is you got to look at that through the lens of like Joe Biden or, uh, you know, any of the Democrats that are trying to be reelected this year during the midterm. Maybe Joe Biden's 2024, but, you know, whomever's trying to get reelected uh, during 2022. Consumer price inflation is kryptonite. Kryptonite, uh, meaning that if you've got high consumer prices go in your area or nationwide, yeah. the probability of you getting reelected is almost zero. Mm. Almost zero. So that's almost a critical factor in getting reelected for a second term. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, you guys don't remember, but Jimmy Carter, you know, it's one of the things that crushed him when he was running uh, back in the 1970s is yeah. that pr consumer price inflation was so high. And usually what happens is the prices go up faster than the wages. Okay. So that and have we been on that trend for a significant oh, amount yeah. of time, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, because I remember they upped the, the, um, the minimum wage in New York. There's a lot of backlash on that, et cetera. And I, and I guess to, I guess, keep up with the increased living costs, but we've pretty much been behind on this situation. That, if you look at a chart of inflation and then wage, or all I have to do is just really look at a chart of real wages, which would be wages adjusted for inflation. Mm -hmm. Since the 1970s, it's pretty much flat. Yeah. Pretty much flat. And then what happens in 2020, because inflation increases so rapidly that sure, we have seen wages gone up, but they haven't gone up near as fast as your groceries have or as your rent payments, or your car insurance, or your kid's college tuition, or your daycare, those prices have gone up much faster. So what that means is the poor and middle class, once again, are getting squeezed. Mm -hmm. And that's in a way that they can understand. You yeah. know, they might not understand the quantitative easing and the you know, yada yada repo market, but they understand when they're paying $10 a pound for beef, 
instead of $5 a pound. And when they go into the voting booth, that's what they remember. Mm. You see? And they say, I don't care if I'm a Democrat. I don't care if I'm a Republican. I just want my prices to go down. And if this is the guy or girl that made the prices go up, I want them out. And the politicians know that. So we have, a, like we said before with the perfect storm, essentially what's happening with inflation, guys, and what inflation basically is, guys, is your money loses its buying power, right? So the buying power is going down while prices are simultaneously going up. Yeah. So not only is your money not able to buy as much as it did before, but now everything is increasing. So it's like you're burning the candle at two different ends. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's basically the concept. It's yeah. just your person, prices are just going up so now, a lot faster than your wages. I have a theory that they can do it on purpose, you think, for election times? Well, so here's what I think is going to happen. Uh, you, going back to March of 2020, mm -hmm. we were actually in an environment of disinflation. So that's not deflation where prices are going down. But that just means that prices are going up. Let's just say at a very slow pace. Okay. okay? At a more yeah. manageable pace. It's usually a, a slower pace of disinflation. But we'll just assume that the CPI was at 1.5%. Uh, so it's not a big deal to consumers. You know, they're not seeing the price of their beef go from $5 a pound to $10 a pound. So they're not freaking out about it, you know. Yeah. So back in 2020, the Fed can come in there and say, oh, yeah, we're doing more quantitative easing. We're doing more X, Y, and Z, and the politicians aren't going to care because they're not worried about inflation. Or the government can come in and say, hey, we're going to do $5 trillion worth of stimmy checks, and they're not worried about inflation because inflation is relatively low. But what happens when the stock market crashes, if real estate crashes, and we're in an environment with high inflation, the government can't come in and say, oh, we're going to spend $5 trillion of stimmy checks. Why? because that makes inflation worse. worse. And, that, and that means that the probability of them getting reelected is even lower. Mm. So you can imagine this phone call between the administration and Jerome Powell. If we have uh, stocks crash, let's just say, you know, going back to March of 2020, this happens in 2022 as a result of them raising rates. And Jerome Powell's the- uh, The Fed chair. Okay. He runs the Fed. He runs the Fed, okay. So, you know, you can hear the Biden, you know, calling Jerome Powell and saying, hey, you know, uh, I heard that you're going to bring rates back down to zero and do more quantitative easing. And Jerome Powell says, yeah, well, I have to. I've got to save the stock market. Yeah. I've got to keep these asset bubbles blown or it's going to crush the whole economy. They're essentially continuously putting a Band-Aid on a busted pipe to stop the bleeding for a period of time, but it can never last. And they got to keep switching out the Band-Aid. Would that be a fair analogy? Uh, yeah, but they have to do more and more. I think a better analogy would be a heroin addict. Mm, and, okay. But what like we're that. talking about is- same high. You need more and more. That's right. We're talking about monetary heroin. Wow. The economy is the drug addict. The economy is the heroin addict. And the stock market is the heroin addict. So is the housing market. And it needs more and more and more and more of those dollars, that currency, the funny money, the, the fiat currency, the liquidity to go higher and higher and higher. Just like that drug addict needs more and more of the drug to get the same effect. Fantastic. Wow. wow. Yeah, okay. The problem Holy with that, that analogy is you guys know where that leads. Sooner or later, the heroin addict kills himself. Exactly. And it's the same thing with the economy. The monetary heroin will kill the economy, just like real heroin will kill an actual human being. So, wow. So, so as so, the average great person, explanation. Uh, George, yeah. in your humble opinion, what is the best method for someone to use this information to uh, either be better their family or themselves to kind of like avoid this uh, breakdown? Yeah, see, well, I think what they have to first do is go back to that conversation with Biden and Jerome Powell, mm. right, where, where uh, Jerome Powell says, listen, if I don't do this, 
you know, the whole economy is going to crash. And Biden says, listen, you did that in 2020. That's fine. Now you cannot do that. I cannot spend all this money. You can't uh, you know, do something that increases asset prices because it's going to increase inflation. And then I'm not going to get reelected. You see, so it's a different conversation. Why I'm, I'm trying to, to uh, finish that thought is so your viewers can assess the probability of Jerome Powell coming back in and propping up the markets in 2020 or in 2022, like he did in 2020. I'm not saying that he's not going to do it. I'm saying the probability is far, far, far lower today than it was in an environment where we didn't have high consumer price inflation. Okay. Wow. Okay. A lot there, guys. Hope you guys are learning here. Um, so, Chris, uh, we'll hit some of these chats real yeah. fast. Um, so, who, who has ultimate say, Jerome or the the president? Who, who has ultimate say, like, let's say, for example, oh, well, sorry, sorry, Biden, I got to do it. Or could it say, Biden say, hey, you can't do it? Who has ultimate say, you would think? I think it's probably the administration because oh, people like to think the Fed is an independent entity mm -hmm. and supposedly they are, but I don't. I don't buy that. I, okay. I think they're just kind of a, a branch of the government. And I think where that where that goes, mm -hmm. if, if you kind of try to use some game theory there, like mm -hmm. what would you do if you were Biden? Yeah. I think what happens is price controls. So they say, listen, we have to do more stimmy checks, as an example. We have to drop rates back down in order to prop up the market or else the economy is going to tank. And then I'm not going to get reelected anyway. Right. What, what would so, you say? Oh, sorry. Go ahead. So, how can I prop up the economy while at the same time put a cap on inflation, consumer price inflation, price controls? So the government comes out and they say, "Listen, average Joe and Jane voter, the reason we've had such high prices since 2020 is because these capitalists, these greedy capitalists, have taken advantage of the cerveza sickness or the beer bug." Right. They've taken advantage of the pandemic and they've tried to rob you blind by increasing prices for no reason other than just sheer greed. So what I'm going to do is Joe Biden or the administration is I'm going to stick up for the little guy. Hmm. We're going to take bold, aggressive action and we're going to come out with price controls. We're going to make it illegal for the grocery store to raise your, your the cost of food. We're going to make it illegal for your landlord to raise the price of your rent. And it's not going to be like the 70s because everyone knows those price controls were bad and all price controls are bad, just FYI. But what they're going to do, I think, is say, oh, it's going to be like the price controls we had in the 1940s. Those were good. We're going to do the good, <laughs> the good price controls. And therefore, it's, it's the administration trying to kind of paint this facade to make themselves look good in order to just have some slim hope of getting reelected. It sounds good. Yeah. Damn. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I'll hit these chats real quick. And guys, do me a favor. Like the video, like the video, man. Okay. And by the way, that will make things way worse. I just want to add that. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, Mal L, how's Fresh Stutter Ninja that can't form coherent sentences on After Hour shows? But the moment George Gamet comes on the pod, he first looks like an economist. Hey, I'm man, <laughs> I'm focused right now. And by the way, I might be I'm played them on on camera, but my money I'm pretty smart. So there you go. There so Mac Joseph, I wonder if he can talk about the 2008 crisis, like what was on purpose and what wasn't. The bank going down. Cool. What's the ideal uh, picks for Vanguard Roth account? Um, mm. And then, uh, and that's from St. REI. And then we got uh, Charles Gaydu. Um, essentially, big money fed and government are all scheming to keep us from knowing we're poor. Mm. And then, uh, <laughs> anything else, Chris? No, we're good. Okay. So, I guess uh, we could, so we got an overview, I guess, about where we are with inflation and everything. What would you say the inflation rate is now? Because normally it was 2%. Would you say we're significantly higher than well, that? Well, that's point? what the government claims. I mean, it's a lot higher than that in reality. Okay. I would what do you say think it's, it's probably, probably 12, 15%. 12, 
So does that constitute as hyperinflation? No, 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 no. Okay. That would be 50% a month. So, okay, so hyperinflation is 50%. Yeah, the technical definition okay. would be 50% per month. Oh, shit. Okay. That's that's bad. But it's still, yeah, I was going <laughs> to say, yeah, that's that's really bad. But we're still not, I mean, with with 14%, that's not good either. So, um, was yeah, it? I mean, we've, we've been here before. I mean, okay, in the 1970s, uh, the CPI, and it was, it was measured a, a little more honestly in the 1970s than it is today. I think it got up maybe 13, 14%. Uh, but in the 1940s, inflation got up to almost 20%. Okay. Most people don't, don't, wow. don't remember that. Yeah, they think the 1970s was the decade of inflation, but 1940s was just as bad. So yeah. how is all this going to affect, I guess, so first we'll talk about the real estate market. How is it going to affect it? Do you think it's going to make it yeah. crash? Do you th what do you see? Yeah, so, uh, so we think about if the Fed uh, raises rates, if the markets, uh, you know, puts downward pressure on the markets, uh, if they can't really do anything about it, then what happens to people's purchasing power when they go to buy a new home is it decreases because they're, you know, they'd have, if, if they can afford, let's say a $2,000 mortgage payment mm -hmm. at a 1% interest rate, we'll just try to keep the math simple. You know, that'd be a dream that that would, <laughs> let's say they could afford, you know, $2,000 a month. Let's say that's a $400,000 house at 1%, right? Yep. Well, if interest rates go to 10%, they cannot afford that $400,000 house uh, because they can just afford the $2,000 a month payment. Now, they can only afford, let's say, a $200,000 house. Mm -hmm. So that's a lot less buying power. So if you have that much, that, that, that lowered buying power in aggregate total, that would put downward pressure on prices. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that prices go down. Another thing that's very important, another concept that would uh, be very valuable for your listeners to really gain from this conversation is that there's always cross currents involved. Whenever you're trying to think of the price of real estate, for example, there's not just one thing that's going to make the real estate market go down. There's always pressures that are pushing prices down and other pressures that are pushing prices yeah. up. You've got to be cognizant of all the pressures and all the cross currents. So many moving parts. That's right. And try to determine which cross current is going to be the most powerful Bam. for how, for how long of a time, right? Mm -hmm. So that's one cross current that will, that will put downward pressures or act as a headwind to prices. Now that said, I think one of your viewers said earlier about the supply side of the equation. Yep. Because it's not just about the demand side, it's about the supply side. And he's right, that right now you cannot build for under, let's say $200 a, a square foot. Yeah, yeah. And prices of like uh, materials have went up significantly too. Labor, labor, yeah. materials, yeah, everything. I Everything's mean, it, going it, up, we're building new. That's new right. So what that means is that builders have to build larger properties and more expensive properties in order to make a profit. Bam. So what 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 you see is uh, like in Phoenix as an example, you go up to North Scottsdale, and you see a lot of new building up there. You see a, not, a lot of new homes being built, but these are three thousand square foot homes. Mm. These are four thousand square foot homes that they're selling for one point two million. You go down into a normal neighborhood, where you know the the homes are maybe twelve hundred square feet, just a nice little simple. I call them starter homes, a three bedroom, two bath. None of those are being made mm. because the builders can't make them at a profit. Right. So if I was buying, if I had to buy real estate right now, I would definitely want to buy a starter home uh, because the builders can't make any more of the supply there. Uh, prices have to go up even higher in order for them to build more of what you own. You okay. See? So is so, that basically the takeaway here is residential is probably looking pretty good right now? Well, not just residential, commercial? the starter homes. 
Okay. So now I'm not saying going into the, the you know, the, a C neighborhood or the ghetto or the hood or you want to call it. Yeah. You know, that that's a whole different story. I'm talking about going into an A neighborhood in like a, a small market, like maybe Kansas City where prices are a little bit lower and buying a three bed, two bath, uh, you know, 1,000, 1,200 square foot home in a good era, good school district. That's, you got to understand that you're playing with fire because you're still buying into a housing bubble, but your downside there is far lower. Okay. And now what happens is we've got, when we talk about real estate and I'm, I'm sure a lot of your uh, viewers are interested in real estate investing, you've got to include the debt. That's very, very, very important because if you can buy that property, that's positive cash flowing with 30 year fixed rate debt, mm -hmm. that's a completely different dynamic, totally different mm -hmm. because what happens is in an inflationary environment, you're paying down your debt with devalued dollars. So that's a okay. transfer of wealth from the borrower to the lender. To the lender. That's right. So let me let me give an example so everyone's on the same page here. Okay. Let's just say that you bought a house today for a hundred thousand dollars. Yep. And you used a hundred percent financing. Okay. And you didn't have to make any payments, any monthly payments. You just had to make a balloon payment in ten years. So okay. you pay back all one hundred thousand dollars in ten years. Okay. Okay. And let's just say that right now a loaf of bread costs one dollar. So basically, we could say your house can buy you 100,000 loaves of bread. Okay. That's the house's purchasing power. Okay. okay. And again, it's all about goods and services. So now let's fast forward uh, 10 years and say that we do have hyperinflation. And now a loaf of bread costs $100,000. But, you know, wages would be up. Everything would just, the prices would all rise of stuff. There's not more stuff. The prices have just risen. Right. So people would be making, you know, whatever, a billion dollars a year if the price of bread is a hundred thousand dollars a loaf. Mm -hmm. But so you could pay back your entire home loan with the cost of one loaf of bread. But think about it, your house is still worth a hundred thousand loaves of bread. Okay. See, so your house can still buy if you were to sell your house yeah. at whatever the price would be, you can still buy a hundred thousand loaves of bread. But all you have to do is give the bank one loaf of bread. Okay. You see, so what happens is the additional nine ninety nine thousand nine hundred ninety nine loaves of bread is purchasing power that was transferred from the bank to you. Okay. You know, another way that we could say it is let's just to take it to a further extreme okay. is let's say that that's hundred thousand dollars, and let's say the value of the dollar goes to zero. Okay. Literally goes to zero, like like Venezuela. It's it's just it's like toilet Useless. paper. <laughs> Useless. You got it. Basically, you just got that house for free. Okay. But, but the house still has value. You could still sell the house yeah. and buy a hundred, you know, a lot of stuff. Right. So that house was just basically the bank gave you that house. Gotcha. So is real estate, I guess it, with, with the, the volatility of the market right now, a good place to store your money, to ensure that it's not going to get eaten up. From if you know what you're doing. I mean, okay. we were talking before about how you've got a few properties and yeah. I'm sure you probably got a 30 year fixed rate loan. That's mm -hmm. the key 30 year fixed rate. You don't want to do adjustable rate mortgages. Yeah. Or anything. But if you've got a 30 year fixed rate and you got good positive cash flow, that's another thing. If you got, uh, you know, negative cash flow, that's not what you want because yeah. that puts you in a very compromising position if prices go down or if you have an occupancy issue but if you've got a solid property good neighborhood and you've got good property management like you've got your father mm -hmm. that's that's a good situation to be in right okay. because what's going to happen now 
even though the uh, the equity in your house, the price might go down, okay, but you're probably going to be making, increasing your purchasing power on the debt side of the equation by paying back the debt with cheaper dollars. So let me give you an exact example using your rental property. Let's say you've got a rental property mm -hmm. where your, your mortgage payment right now mm -hmm. is $500. Okay. Okay. And your rents, let's say, are $1,000 a month. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, if we have inflation that goes to, uh, you know, s significant, severe inflation, your rents, let's say, go up to uh, $10,000 a month, mm -hmm. right? And it's not, but everyone's payments go, just the price just adjusts, right? But your mortgage payment is still 500. Yep. You see? So you're collecting 10,000 in rent. Yep. But we're still paying that historical price that we got. But your mortgage payment didn't go up. Your mortgage yeah. payment's still the same. Yep. So that's what we're saying there in economic terms is you're paying back that loan with devalued dollars. So that's, uh, that's basically $9,000 mm -hmm. that you didn't have before coming in from that property Bam. that you own with that $500 a month payment. Gotcha. You see, that's where the magic happens with real estate. So as long as you go into this real estate market, understanding that you're playing with fire, you're understanding that you're buying at all time highs. But what you have to do is going back to that balance sheet thing that we were talking about. We have assets on our balance sheet and we have liabilities. Before in a normal market, let's say prior to the late 1990s, the property was always the asset on your balance sheet and the debt was always the liability. Mm -hmm. But now I think it's the reverse. No. That's okay. how you have to look at it. The property is your liability. The debt is your asset. Gotcha. Meaning that there's a good chance that you lose purchasing power with that property because you're buying at all-time highs, prices. But there's a, a good chance too that you increase your purchasing power to a greater degree with the debt that you have by pay, taking advantage of inflation mm -hmm. and paying the debt back with cheaper dollars. You just got to think of it as though it's switched. The yeah. property is the liability, the debt's the asset. Yeah. If you think about it as the property as the asset and debt liability, then I think people would be prone to make mistakes. Mm. So knowing that, that it's basically the inverse. And on top of that, that we're in a shortage, uh, we're in a housing shortage for that uh, type of home you described earlier, three twos, whatever, family homes, et cetera. Starter homes, that's starter right. Homes. So so if someone's interested in real estate, focus on the starter homes. Don't focus on the, the million dollar. Home? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Those are fantastic. Yeah. yeah, those are fantastic. But yeah. don't th th sit there and look at a you know $800,000 or million dollar house in uh, Scottsdale yeah. and think that you're making a good investment. Oh, no. Or you know, or maybe a $4 million condo here in Miami or something like that and think that you're making a good investment because the price is always just going to go up using cash. That That's that's a bad so let idea. Me, just so the audience can understand. So what I'm getting from this, and then we'll move on to crypto real yeah. quick. So real estate to build property right now is extremely expensive. That's right. So the construction companies are emphasizing doing big commercial product projects yeah. to make more money. To, to make money, period. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, to, to basically, yeah, to make some kind of profit. Because building small homes no is profit. not going to make them the same money. Nope, no profit, so, no money. Yeah, or maybe even lose. Yeah, so the way I can say that is if it's $250 to build right now, yeah. you can buy that starter home for $200 a square foot. Okay. But if it costs $250 a square foot to, to build, mm -hmm. they're never going to build until the prices go up to $250. Bam. So or else they're building it at, at a loss. So they're prior. To, so the construction companies are prioritizing the big commercial projects. Yep. The single family homes, the starter homes, are not being prioritized right Correct. now. However, those are in a shortage. Correct. So if something does happen, you'll at least have properties that I guess what do they say um, supply and demand. Supply and demand. Yeah, demand is high. 
yeah and another thing there. yeah and another thing that as if, if you have a rental property your main concern is rent it's not really you know the price of the property you're just buying the cash flow so so that's exactly. what you're you're most concerned with right so i always look at it as kind of like a totem pole okay and the starter homes are at the bottom of the totem pole mm -hmm. so you've got your your person that can afford let's say uh five thousand dollars a month in rent at mm -hmm. the top then four thousand three thousand then you got your person at the bottom yeah. that can afford a thousand dollars a month in rent that's that's renting that starter home from you okay let's say we go through a massive recession Let's say we go through the Great Depression or, you know, some some sort of uh, collapse in 2022 or 2023. Everyone is not going to lose their job. Yeah. Even in the Great Depression, the unemployment rate was only 25 percent. Right. So that means that people are just going to ratchet down their ability to pay expenses. So the person Damn. that could okay. afford the five thousand dollars a month now can afford two thousand. Gotcha. But you're always at the bottom. So the only way you won't have a renter is if there are no renters. Bam. Yeah. So you're always so you're at a level so low that they even if if people are downsizing, they're probably going to downsize into you. Yeah, that's right. That's okay, right. that's fantastic that's well explanation, man. So I hope you guys got that. And so, um, real quick, Chris, I'll hit some of these real fast, and then we'll hit uh, crypto. Yeah, no um, problem. No, nah, man, guys, like the goddamn video if you guys are enjoying this content, man, because you guys are getting a lot of gems right now. Hell, I'm even learning because I had a whole strategy. I was going to get into commercial. Now I'm thinking like. No, I need to stick with the residential now at this point with the duplex and everything because yeah. I literally had a meeting earlier where I was talking about like, hey, should we do apartment co are apartment complexes and stuff safe right now too? Or should well, we be? It depends. It, like with Kenny, for sure, because Kenny's an expert. You know, Kenny manages over a billion dollars of real estate. Uh -huh. So if, if you're that good and you've been doing this for 25, 30 years, however long Kenny's been doing it, we're talking about Kenny McElroy, a good yeah, friend of yeah. mine that's a YouTuber as well um then yeah okay it's a great opportunity less and experience it depends, or whatever it depends where it depends where okay you know if you're talking about an apartment complex here in florida yeah that could be interesting apartment complex in la no thank you gotcha apartment right. complex in new york no thank you gotcha okay um jose press two more questions george should i buy more puts also george you think we'll see uh negative interest rates i know real rates are negative but mm. we're already behind i think we talked about that earlier uh Luis molina two bucks uh, what do you think about Bitcoin? Coming I'm going to hit that right now, right now, right now, sorry. Justin Del Valle, uh, feel like none of this matters if you just buy and hold, at least when it comes to the market or property, both have historically gone up since the dawn of society. Okay. And then John O'Driscoll, FNF, big kudos. GG is a special kind of genius. Question for George, FY Fed report released recently about the 2008 crisis, the Fed bailed out the world to, uh, to the amount of 30 trillion. Mm -hmm. Your thoughts? See you in June. Okay. Um, so we'll talk about Bitcoin and then we'll hit that question. Uh, yeah, the, so one thing I think a lot of, a couple of your super chats have hit on is the fact that, uh, or the assumption mm -hmm. that, uh, stocks and real estate always go up. Okay. So, well, if I just buy the dip and wait, I'll be fine because mm -hmm. stocks always go up mm -hmm. uh, at the end of the day, even though we had the GFC real estate always goes up. That is, uh, you don't want to think that way. Uh, that that's completely inaccurate. Okay. Uh, that I was under that premise. So, uh, hey, I'm going to learn something new right now. No, let, let me let me just give you an example yeah. why that's not true. If you, I, I use a chart on my whiteboards all the time of housing in the United States adjusted for inflation going back to the year 1900. Okay. So if we start at 1900 and go all the way to the late 90s, we'll say 1997. So almost 100 years in the United States. How much did prices go up? What do you think? What would you guess? Multiple times? In a hundred years. Multiple times? 
What do you think, Mark? So, sorry, I was Chris distracted no me problem. here. From, from 1900 uh -huh. to 1997, so almost 100 years in the United States, how much did prices go up just in general in the United States for, for the housing market? Mm. More than maybe double or triple at this point? Quadruple? Zero. Zero? I thought it was a trick, a trick question. You yeah. got, he got us. Zero. And sorry, guys, I was taking a son behind the scenes with, with Chris, so, but sorry. So, so when you adjust for inflation, yeah. housing prices were the exact same in 1997 as they were in 1900. Okay. The key is taking in, into account inflation. So that's right. Well, you have to do that because yeah. we're talking about purchasing power. That's all we care about is purchasing power. Yeah. You know? So, I mean, what's the best performing real estate market in the whole wide world? Venezuela. Venezuela. Does that mean that you want one of those properties? No, because they're denominated in boulevards. So you're losing your purchasing power, even though the nominal price is going through the roof, right? So housing prices really don't go up, or they shouldn't. If they do, then that means there's something wrong. That means there's, the system is, is flawed. So why is that? Because that uh, home prices are directly tied to wages, as you would imagine, because you need wage to pay the mortgage. And then usually you've got a, a standard rate of interest, let's say five, six percent that we've seen historically, right? So if you look at that normal interest rate, you look at wages, wages would have to go up in order for home prices to go up. And if wages are going up, usually that means inflation is going up at the same pace or even a little bit faster. So that's why when you adjust for inflation, it's basically adjusting for wages, the price of the homes have not changed. The only time they change is when we're in a massive bubble. Right. And now let's look at the stock market. Okay. Mm -hmm. Going back prior to 1981, because what happened in 1981? Well, that's when Paul Volcker raised interest rates, the Fed funds, which is now zero, up to 18%. Mm. 18%. Right. So since that time, we've been in a 40 year down cycle of interest rates. Okay. So you can't sit there and look at what stocks have done since 1981 or what the real estate market has done since 1981 and say, this is going to happen for the next 40 years. Mm -hmm. This is going to happen indefinitely into the future. No, 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 no. Because for the next 40 years, we could be in an up cycle in interest rates. So if we go from zero back up to 18% over the next 40 years. I can promise you, whatever stocks did from 1981 to now, they will not do <laughs> over the, over the next, next 40 year. years. So then what you have to do is you have to look at the stock market prior to 1981, going through multiple interest rate cycles, down cycles and up cycles, and say, what happened to stocks? And there were multiple times when stocks actually went down. In fact, uh, my memory serves me right. If you take out dividend payments, and again, you adjust for inflation, the stock market in like 1927 was basically the exact same as it was in 1981. Mm. You see, so people just look at the last couple decades and assume that that's going to be the same or that's going to happen indefinitely into the future. And that is a fool's game. You cannot think that way. You've got to go back to 1900. You've got to look at multiple cycles and then come to those conclusions. And another example I'd use is look at Japan. You know, in 1990, they had their huge bust, massive debt bubbles, exactly what we're seeing today in the United States. Their real estate market went down and down and down and down. 15 years later, it was still going down. Mm -hmm. Their stock market today in 2022 is lower than it was in 1990. Mm -hmm. You see? So this, this idea that stock markets just go up forever 
or real estate markets go up forever is a complete fallacy. That's just what financial planners tell you to get you to invest with them so they can basically rob you for fees. You know, and the Dave Ramsey types sit there and say, oh, well, you know, you just go back and look and the stock market always goes up. The stock market always goes up. And then they'll just show you a chart just going back to 1981. And you say, well, Mr. Financial Planner, well, what happened? Did, did a stock market exist before 1981? <laughs> oh, it did, didn't it? Yeah, I, th I think it was a little older than that. Well, what happened before? You see, and that's what they never tell you. Mm. So wow. should people even bother getting in if it, it's not actually really appreciating? Or is it, it just a, a good place to get in just to park your money well, somewhere? You already know that answer, right? It depends. You don't say, is the price going up or down? Is it cheap or is it expensive? Based so, on that's so then you go and look at the PE ratios. Yeah. Right now, the stock market is just the S&P 500, let's say, or the NASDAQ. Uh -huh. It's very expensive, historically speaking. Very expensive. So you don't buy. But if the stock market gets really cheap. Like now. or Well, not now. It's not cheap now. But if in the future, it may be cheap if the stock market crashes. You don't think the crash brought it down a little bit as far as like stocks going down in price? You, you're talking about the crash of 2020? Oh, no, no, no. Right, like right now at this moment. Yeah. Oh, like no, last no, no, week, no. I guess, when it oh, really got hit. Oh, not even close, Myron. It, it's still at nosebleed levels. Okay. Wow. So it's still high. It, oh, it's still in bubble territory for sure. Okay. Yeah. So if you look at uh, March of 2020 as an example. Yeah. Now, there were some things that got really cheap. I don't know if you guys were following it, but, but oil actually got negative. I remember that. Oil went to negative $38 a barrel you know, in the, in the, in the futures market. Um, it's not like you buy a barrel of oil for negative money, but, uh, so that's an example of something getting real cheap and, you know, the spot price got down, I think maybe, uh, or, uh, other, the, the main price of oil got down. I think it was under, let's just say $20 a barrel. Or so if you look at a long-term chart of oil adjusted for inflation, going back as far as you can, you see that when it, uh, gets under 30 a barrel, it becomes pretty cheap. Kind of the median price is right around, you know, uh, sixty-five dollars. So when it's getting thirty, it's pretty cheap. Now when it's getting eighty, eighty-five, it's getting kind of expensive. So all that means is that when you or your viewers ever see oil go under thirty dollars a barrel, it's a good time to buy because okay. it's cheap. So just buy a good oil producer that's going to pay you a good dividend. That's one thing I love to do is just getting paid to own something. Yep. You know, I want to be, if you, if I'm going to own something, if I'm going to buy it, I want to get paid to own it. Okay. And so that's a dividend paying stock or real estate. Yeah. Right. But that's an example of buying something when it's cheap and not, and see, and I bought a lot of oil producers back in March of 2020, but I thought oil was going down even further. Honestly, mm -hmm. I thought the price was going down, but I still bought. Why? Because I'm not trying to time the market. I'm yeah. not trying to figure out the price direction. I'm not trying to figure out the top or the bottom. I'm just asking myself a simple question. Is it cheap? And if it's cheap, I buy it. If it's expensive, I sell it. Real estate, 2012, the cash flow, it's cheap. So I was buying everything I possibly could. For the last two or three years, I've been selling. In fact, just the other day, I sold my last property in the United States. Now, it, you know, are real estate prices going to go up? Maybe. I don't know. I mean, it's in a bubble, but it could quadruple from here. Who knows? But I don't care. Because if it's expensive now, I'm going to sell. You gotcha. do just stick to those, uh, that those premise, rules. Yeah. And then what that does is that gives you an edge. Mm. And if you have a mathematical edge, then you now are the house. You know, if you're playing a casino, yeah. right? You're the house. Yep. They have a mathematical edge. Yep. So then the law of large numbers is on your side. 
So the only thing you have to do to make sure you come out ahead is just stay in the game okay. because you have that mathematical edge. Damn. Well, so basically the mindset of just saying, hey, you know what? Just buy and hope for it to go up isn't going to follow. But you're saying look for the cheap prices when it's cheap and buy when it's and cheap. And then hold. And then hold. Till it gets expensive and then, and then sell. sell. <laughs> That's pretty simple. It's profound but simple. Buy yeah. low, sell high. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. So uh, crypto, real quick. What are your thoughts on that? Is it something that people should get into? Is it going to protect them from this inflation and all those other Metaverse, crazy things we have? NFTs. Yeah. What's your thoughts on that? Yeah. So I think, well, just using that framework, you know, you have to decide, uh, let's use Bitcoin as an example. You know, is it cheap or is it expensive? And so crypto gets very difficult there because it doesn't produce cash flow. And you yeah. don't have a lot of historical reference, you know, just for inflation and everything. So when I'm now, I think that everyone should own Bitcoin. I, I don't know. The other cryptos, I don't really like. Ethereum? Uh, it's okay. But I, I think that everyone should own Bitcoin. Why? Not necessarily because the price is going to $100,000 or a million or anything, but I think that everyone should hold some purchasing power outside of the banking system. Okay. Especially like, like guys like you, you know, because you guys are, you know, your, your podcast is all about, uh, uh, you know, the ladies and making money and, you know, kind of what it's like to be a guy in today's world. But you guys say some things that are unpopular with the CNN types. <laughs> That's a fact. Right? <laughs> we all do. Yeah. We all do. Right? So we're going into a very scary environment of censorship, as an example. And this yeah. is one thing that I say all the time. If you look back throughout history, the people that have been in favor of censorship, when have they been the good guys? Never? Never. Never. Never really, yeah. Never. They're always the bad guys. Yeah. So think about how many people that are in charge, you know, politically or in the mainstream media that are pushing for censorship of podcasts just like this one. Yep. You know, that trend is going to continue. Even if we get the survey sickness behind us, I think it's only a matter of time before there's another crisis that they try to take advantage of. You know, you never let a good crisis go to waste. Of course. And so I think that they want to control us. They want to control the Thanks. narrative. They want to control what people say, mm -hmm. right? So what, if they don't like what you guys are saying, you know, why wouldn't they come in and say, Fresh, you, you really, you're a danger to society because of your words. We so don't like your Rogan ideas. Right now. That's right. So That's right. Joe. That's right. It's this funny. is a great example. At this example. moment, they're doing that to Joe Rogan. On Facebook, example. if you great put example. up a video, right, that is not in their guidelines or their community standards, and they find it offensive or some people don't report it enough, they just say, hey, you know what? This is considered uh, a bad practice for the platform, and they just delete it. Yeah, and then I think the next step for them is to look like at, at a Joe Rogan mm -hmm. and say, well, what he's saying is so dangerous that he, we should consider him a domestic terrorist. Right. And if he's a domestic terrorist, well, then we have to seize his bank account. And if it's, it's, all, all, digits it's all and no cash, you can't do anything. That's right. Control. So now what would happen in that scenario if Joe Rogan had some Bitcoin or if he owned some physical gold, something like that outside of the banking system? He could barter. You see, he would still have purchasing power, mm. right? So it's kind of like just setting up a plan B. And it's I, I don't want people to lose sleep over it. I'm, I'm not saying that's going to happen. But it, today, you never know. it's something we have to be cognizant of. Yeah. It's not a zero probability. So you got to think, what's the, the downside of having a plan B? Well, there is none. 
So it, especially when you're in your business mm -hmm. or like Rogan, uh, you know, if you're making YouTube videos or content, or even if you're not, I think at some point in time, you may be in those crosshairs. And so it, it's good. And that's one main reason why I like Bitcoin. But going back to pricing it, I think that. Uh, so why Bitcoin and not like Ethereum or whatever? Is it because it follows the, it's kind of in tandem with the NASDAQ? Is it a little bit more stable in your opinion? Like, is there a particular reason why Bitcoin and not the other coins? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I could go on for that for a long, long time. But it, it's basically kind of sound money. I like sound. You know, you can't create more of it. Uh, I could go into okay. the tech, but the people who mm -hmm. understand Austrian economics or the, the principles of sound money and basically the government not being able to create more of it. Mm -hmm. You know, you want a cryptocurrency that they can't create more of it. OK. okay. You know, and then there's other advantages as well. But that's why I, I, I favor Bitcoin. But mm -hmm. again, I don't really think you should. I'm not saying go out and buy it because it's going to 100,000 like most people. You know, yeah, I say yeah. buy it regardless of what happens to the price. Gotcha. Because you need something outside of the banking Damn. system. That, that's that's just a great smart plan B, right? So then the question becomes, okay, well, when do you buy? Mm -hmm. And so we talked about buying things when they're cheap and selling them when they're expensive. But what I also like to do as far as looking at a catalyst is I like to buy things when there's panic and sell okay. hysteria, right? Buy panic, sell hysteria. And so your timing, so look at Bitcoin right now. Is there panic in the market? Well, when it was getting down close to 30,000. Yeah, there was. There was a little bit of panic there. I remember right? when Elon Musk made that announcement and it shot up, shot up. Just one article on what he said, it just shot up the price of Bitcoin. Yeah. But let's also look at the flip side. Let's look at when Bitcoin was at, uh, you know, what, 65, 68,000 yeah, a few that. months ago. Yeah. You heard it everywhere. Every single podcast was talking about, you yeah. know, the athletes started to get their some of their salary in Bitcoin. Yeah, yeah. You know, when you see that, that's hysteria. Yeah. That that doesn't happen at the bottom of a market. That happens at the top. You guys are probably too young to remember, but I I uh, going back to probably 2011 or so, the dollar was very weak against the euro. The euro is the the European. I remember currency, that, okay? And uh, I remember Jay-Z came out with a song and I can't remember which one it was, but part of the lyrics you know how he's always talking about how rich he is, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, of course. <laughs> and 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 part of the lyrics was basically Sam paraphrasing, but he was saying that he is so rich that he's only being paid in euros. euros. Mm. When you see stuff like that, you know that that's a that, that's a contrarian indicator, and you need to take the opposite side of that. Gotcha. So if Jay Z is talking about getting paid in euros, short the euro. Yeah. If Jay Z or X Y Z football player is talking about getting paid in Bitcoin, hold off on buying more Bitcoin. So yeah. NFT is kind of the same thing. It's a hype. Absolutely. It's a hype. Okay. Absolutely. And I'm not saying that uh, that Bitcoin or, or cryptos, let's say, or NFTs aren't the future. Mm. I'm just saying, listen, if we go back to the late 90s, we look at the dot-com bubble. It's not that the internet wasn't the future. It's just that those businesses had no business being in business. They weren't making money. They were. It was totally unsustainable. The prices were way, way, way too high. There was hysteria, right? Then what happened when the dot-com bubble burst? There was panic. So you want to sell the hysteria and you mm. want to buy the panic with that long-term view. You know, if you have a long-term view that uh, cryptocurrency is the future, that's fantastic. That's fantastic. But when you're adding to your position, just make sure you're doing so when there's panic in the market and not when there's hysteria. When you go and all your buddies are talking about buying 
crypto this or crypto that and you go i remember i was at the golf course uh you know a few months ago and i was there hitting uh, on the driving range right mm -hmm. and there was a group of college guys on in front of me and behind me and they were sitting there talking about how they're up trading cryptocurrency until like two o'clock in the morning <laughs> is that's not when you want to buy right th right that's when you want to hold off on your position now when it goes under uh, here's another example on the opposite side Remember when it got down to near uh, 30,000 and you started seeing those memes on Twitter with um, with uh, what's the guy that uh, is famous for buying all the crypto? He's he's the CEO of uh, of I think it's micro technologies, My Michael Saylor, Michael Saylor. Mm -hmm. And there were all these memes of him working at McDonald's. <laughs> <laughs> that's because when you buy. Yeah, that, that's when you think maybe not buy, but, but that's when you say, hmm. I, that's interesting. That's interesting. Let's follow this mm -hmm. and see if there's more panic here. When you start to see something called capitulation, where everyone sells and says, oh, this Bitcoin was the worst thing I've ever bought in my life. It's going to go down forever. When Jim Cramer comes out and says, oh, well, this is uninvestable. That's when you want to say, hmm. Take a look. Hmm. So precious metals, what's your thoughts on it? Gold, silver, Good hedge against the issues that we got with inflation. Uh, should people get into it? Is it worth it? Yeah. So it? my portfolio, I always call it a 10-80-10. So 10% okay. would be insurance. And I think that's physical gold. You're not trying to get rich. You're just trying to maintain some purchasing power right there. And throughout 5,000 years, gold has been a very good, has done that well, right? So again, you're not trying to buy gold because it's going to go to 10,000 and you're going to uh, become a, a gold billionaire or anything like that. Mm -hmm. No, you're just maintaining the purchasing power, maybe an offset to your cash position. Yeah. Now, 80% of the portfolio is what I call investments. Now, I just define that as things that pay you to own them. Right? Okay. So that would be a dividend paying stock. Okay. That would be your real estate, yeah. you know, your positive cash flowing real estate. That that's that's a very safe bet because whatever the price does, you don't care as long as you're getting paid. Mm -hmm. You know, you you can afford to wait. You're never a motivated seller. And that's a great position to be in, right? Gotcha. And the other 10% of the portfolio, I like in speculative assets. Okay. Uh, and so what I mean there is it might not pay you to own it, but you think there's good asymmetry. So maybe if Bitcoin were to go down to, let's say 20,000 again, and you see that panic and you think, boy, the upside here might be 200 grand and there's a lot of panic. It's very unloved. I think my risk reward there is very good. But it's not paying you to own it. That would be a good example of a speculation. Same thing going back to 2020 March. I bought a lot of uranium. Okay. So that those those producers weren't paying me. I wasn't getting a dividend, but I bought some uranium an ETF. Um, now on the investment side. Okay, you bought a uranium ETF. Yeah, correct. Okay. Uh, another thing I bought back then was coal. So this is a great example of how you really really make money in the market is you buy what is absolutely unloved. And this kind of goes back to the gold miners, you know. Silver? So, well, the gold miners are unloved right now, but you guys probably don't remember this, but back in the mid-90s, the tobacco companies were under a massive amount of pressure. They were getting sued right and left. I remember because right the, they were putting commercials out like crazy. Hey, surgeon's warning, smoking is bad. I remember in Yeah, the childhood. government came down on them and, and they, they had to pay out billions and billions and billions of dollars. And they got they had all these regulations, yeah, right? So I everyone remember. thought that tobacco was dead. You know, no pun intended. Tobacco, the tobacco is uninvestable, yeah. as, as Jim Cramer would say, mm -hmm. right? Well, all that did is just create a moat around the existing tobacco companies 
So what they did is they didn't have any competition. So they're like, this is incredible. So the demand stayed the same because they grew, you know, into other areas, into emerging markets. And when people make more money, they, they eat poorly, they smoke, they do these things. So they had the demand stay the same, but the supply side coming to the market got incredibly constricted and it was just basically monopolized. So if you look at the, the industries in the stock market, one of the best performing industries, if not the best, when you account for reinvesting dividends has been tobacco since the mid nineties. It's not Facebook. It's not tech. It's not these it's tobacco. Literally. You, I just had a light bulb hit me. I remember as a kid, cause my dad smokes, I'm trying to get him off it. But I remember him complaining about the price going up significantly for a pack of cigarettes yeah. in the 90s because they were doing all this stuff in the, with commercials like, don't smoke, it's bad for you. They put the surgeon warning stuff in there. Restaurants started telling people you can't smoke in here. Yeah. There was like this huge push to demonize tobacco. Um, and now that you're mentioning it, like I remember it vividly. And, and uh, my dad would always complain because this is back in like, you know, mid, late 90s. He was like, man, the cigarettes are expensive. It's like $5 a pack, which back then was like crazy. Yeah. You know? And so, everything uh, thought, and everyone thought that would crush the tobacco companies. Actually helped. It was the exact opposite. Wow. Nothing you could have done could have been better for the tobacco companies. So my point now is I think uh, the new tobacco. Backfired. Yeah. yeah well, I think the new tobacco is coal. Okay. So you think of coal today and it's uninvestable. You know, we've got why, green why so, energy, we've got ESG, okay. all that coal's a dirty fuel, it's dirty, dirty, no one can invest in Tesla's that. Tesla's going to take over. Oh, Tesla's going to okay. do this. We're going to have electric cars by, you know, 2030 yes. and all these things. But pe that's people don't understand. Coal's the same thing. You've got all these emerging markets, they're going to need coal. Even if we do a green new deal, you guys have heard about that, you know, or build back better. What's right? the coal ETF real quick? Do you know it? Well, it was KOL, but okay. that they, they dismantled that. So... Yeah, don't look at coal, but you can just look at coal ETF, and okay. I'm sure there's... Um, I'm going to look that up after this. Yeah, what I can do is I, I'm happy to give you guys a free membership to Rebel Capitalist Pro, and we that's my online investing thing portal, okay. and sure. uh, I'll just give you guys a free membership, and you guys can check out. we got a lot of coal companies in there. Awesome. But, cool. uh, Thank you. Yeah, no problem. But that is a good example of something that was very unloved that was paying you an epic amount to own it. I remember back in March of 2020, that ETF was still there. And I was buying it very cheap because coal was going down along with everything else. With and the plus, gas prices as well and everything. Plus it had already been crushed because of this ESG movement, right? That I was getting paid 15% dividend. What? 15%. Right. And since when That's I, unheard of. Yeah. And before they dismantled it, it went up like it quadrupled in, or maybe tripled, quadrupled in price while I owned it while I was being paid a 15% dividend. That deal. shit's on even real estate. See, uh, that's, ETFs. That, that's what you want to do. That's buying things when they are cheap, buying things when they're unloved. So going back to your question, Fresh, about gold and uh, gold miners, mm. I'm not buying gold mine. Now, gold I would buy regardless because that's an insurance policy. So I don't worry about the price there. But the gold miners, I think, could be a very good speculation. And I, I'm not buying them right now, but I'm very interested because they're very unloved. And everyone says gold is dead and crypto is going to take over and, and, you know, it's not an inflation hedge anymore. And when people start talking like that, that's when you want to Pay attention. get interested, put them on your watch list and watch how, especially if we get a crash in the stock market moving forward, the gold price will most likely plummet taking down the gold miners. And that would be a great, at least for me, that would be a great buying opportunity. Wow. So uh, what about silver? 
thoughts on silver? Same thing. Similar? Yes. Yeah, I don't look at it as insurance. I look at it as more of a speculative asset. Okay. But so, you know, the mining companies, I just put them all in the same group. Okay, so silver is a little bit more speculative. Gold, stable, safe. Yeah, gold is just the insurance policy, physical gold. Yeah. Okay. okay. Damn, man. Yo, guys, I hope you like this goddamn video right now because there's so much <laughs> game being dropped right now. I can't even, I'm not even looking at the monitor. I'm paying so much attention. Uh, real quick, I'll hit these. Uh, and we got to get going here. We might go right into the Q&A because I know yeah. George got to catch a flight here, guys. He's actually here in between flights, so thank you so much for coming. Yeah, going to Medellin. Uh, Colombia. One of your guys' favorite. Places. Finally, somebody that speaks my language. Everybody take notes. I'm a scientist, LOL. Cool. Quest all day. I'm going to be real, though. Coming from where I'm from, going from paying rent to owning an investment property has changed my mindset for life. Bam. Good job. Anime, red pill. So real estate is for maintaining wealth and cryptos for generating it. On the right line of thinking, GG. Sorry. He said here, is, uh, we'll start the question. Real estate then. for maintaining wealth versus crypto is for generating wealth. Uh, real estate, if you know what you're doing, you can make a lot of money there. Like like Kenny is an example. You know, he's made a lot of money in real estate. So is Kiyosaki. Um, uh, for you guys, you know, you can make a lot of money. You can use leverage. It's good. But um, I think for maintaining wealth, I, I think gold is really really good for that. Okay. Okay. Um, cool. Hold on. Uh, what's in guys? I'm trying to mow. What right now, Chris? No, not right now, but um. There we go. Super tax. Okay. You know, so, another thing that I ahead. might be able to go over for your uh, your listeners quickly is just a small, and I think this may be, you know, I think a lot of people listen to this and say, okay, well, what if I don't have any money to invest? This is all great if I've got $10,000 or $50,000 or a million or whatever. Um, but, you know, I, I'm not that guy. I'm making $20 an hour, $50 an hour, and I'm able to save a little bit of money every single month, but I don't have that big uh, wad of cash that yeah. I can start investing and kind of playing in this game. Um, so, uh, I retired in 2012, but I've always kind of been, you know, I'm the big brother and my younger brother was having some health issues back in 2017. So long story short, I had to move him out to Tucson and I went out there to help him. Well, I, I, did, I had nothing to do because all my real estate projects were being managed by my team down there. I didn't really need to get involved. Awesome. So um, I was just bored out of my mind. So long story short, what I started to do is I started to get involved with RVs and Airstreams and these trucks. I didn't know anything about trucks, but I went out and bought one just to pull one of the Airstreams. Like a, like a tractor trailer type joint? No, like F-150, Ford F-150. Oh, okay, okay. And then I, it turned out that F-150 was no good for my trailer. It wasn't powerful enough. So I sold it like two days or three days, something like that took me to sell it on Craigslist. And I made like $3,000 on it, mm -hmm. right? Because I kind of fixed it up, took good pictures of it and stuff. I thought, my goodness, this is wow, how did I do that? You know, so I started researching these particular trucks mm. and it turns out that they're in very high demand. It's this uh, from basically 1995 to 2002, these Ford uh, trucks. So I started teaching myself more and more and more about it. And I got to the point where I started with, I mean, I had a lot of money in the bank, but I maybe just started with 20, $30,000. I was buying these trucks and I was buying them on Craigslist in areas around the country with no rust. That's key. Because all the areas on the East Coast, they rust out easy, right? In Jersey and Ohio and uh, places like Minnesota. So these trucks were in very high demand because of the motor. And so I would go buy them off of uh, people on Craigslist in California where gas was very expensive. And then I'd take them, I'd, I'd take great pictures of them. That's key. And I'd put them up on eBay to where you have a national market. <laughs> and I'd almost double my money on every truck. Mm, almost every game. truck there you yeah. go. and so what's really cool about that is if you've got a lot of your viewers or listeners who are interested maybe one day in being a kenny mcelroy 
you know, getting involved with real estate, when you're doing that with cars or trucks or tennis shoes or anything, it's the same game. If you can do that with cars or trucks, you can do it with real estate. Yep. Because it's just managing subcontractors, it's buying low, it's negotiating, it's improving, and then selling to uh, the highest bidder. Mm. You know, so, but the great thing about that is people can do it and the barrier of entry is far lower. Yeah. You know, right. some guy's watching this right now that's got $10,000, mm-hmm. he can do that. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if you can just, I think Gary V talks about this a lot, you know, a side hustle where you're just buying things at a local level mm-hmm. that, that where you know what the price should be. And that seller doesn't, and they're, you're selling it on eBay and pocketing the spread. You know, I was doing, I start off and within probably three or four months, I was probably making 20, 30 grand a month mm. just as, just cause I was Flip bored, trucks. just bored, in, just in bored, Arizona. nothing to do. And so I think, and then if I hadn't, have, uh, you know, if I didn't have any experience prior to that, then what I would have taken away from that is not only making a hundred thousand dollars quickly that you could then take and start investing and doing the things that we're talking about, but also you get the education to where if you want to start investing in real estate, well, now you know the game because you've been doing it with all these two and $3,000 cars, you see? Gotcha. And so I think that that's a great thing for people to do that are trying to build up enough money to start investing. Okay, so we'll get shotgun round here, guys, uh, with uh, questions. So uh, real estate is for, okay, read that one. Uh, Moby the Will. Moby the Will. Finally, someone said, I studied economics in college and was luckily, luckily to have a professor that broke this down. Everyone wants to push you stocks and real estate without looking at the historical picture and rules of money. Cool. 20 bucks. Keep chilling. Which stock do you know pays dividends uh, monthly? Well, we just talked about that with uh, Cole. Cool. And I know the real estate ones also pay pretty good dividends, but 15% is unheard of. Wow. Uh, Hanun Ali. Fire episode, what's your thoughts on a construction housing purchases in the United States? We talked about that. Clip what he just said on censorship, straight facts. Great show. And that's from Nobunaga with 100 And then Nobunaga again. George is a magical man. Censorship. Uh, thank you so much, Nobunaga. Appreciate that greatly, man. And then uh, last one, Daniel A, 20 bucks, great, uh, all George the way from GBP, Great Britain. George, legend, glad, George, George is a legend. Glad to see him on the show. show. So what are some of these questions that came in, uh, Chris? Yeah, I put in uh, uh, Telegram. So we'll run through a speed sure round, guys. Some of them too, you know? You got to be quick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so we got one here. It goes... Uh, Okay, thoughts on Divi Homes rent to own program as a way to get into real estate? Um, I, I'm not sure about that particular program. Okay. Uh, I think rent to own, uh, I, I'd prefer getting a loan from a bank because you're not able to take advantage of the 30 year fixed rate loan. And remember the, the properties, the liability, the debts, the assets. So you're basically exactly. buying it without the asset. Cool. Um, mm-hmm. Thoughts on Chinese debt, 100 trillion, and real estate companies. And this is from uh, Estacada Riches. Are you aware of Tether USDT being basically digital fiat money? And sure. just overinflating the crypto market, BTC and ETH. Sure, I think it's possible. I mean, I, I do not like Tether. Okay. I'm not a fan of Tether because they're they're hiding basically what's on their balance sheet, what they've purchased with all the dollars that people have actually given them, or they say there's a one-to-one ratio. I don't know what assets they have, and I know those assets can go down in value. Now, whether or not they've created more Tethers than they've actually taken in with dollars, or there's more Tethers out there, than uh than assets on their balance sheet as far as the the nominal value i don't know okay i know many people have made that claim and that's what your uh your viewer is referring to but uh, even if they're not creating more demand through kind of bogus uh fake tethers if you will um i don't like tether from the standpoint of no one knows what's on their balance sheet mm. no one know that they won't really disclose that they won't let people audit it and that's for me it's always a red flag okay 
Um, Justin uh, Deval, hey, qu uh, George, quick question. Got 800K sitting in a low-cost total market index fund, Vanguard. Should I keep it all there or spend it elsewhere? I'm 27, by the way, live in New York. Thanks. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't give anyone individual investment advice because I don't know the situation. I don't know how much he's making with a job. I, I don't know a lot of these things. Um, but if it were me, I would not I would not want my $800,000 in a Vanguard fund in the stock market. Absolutely no chance. No. No. Okay. Uh, St. REI, what's the ideal picks for Vanguard Roth account? Yeah, so again, the, the, I don't think there's any ideal picks. I don't know what they'll let you buy, but you just got to buy things that are cheap. So the only thing that I know that's cheap right now, that, that I, and I'm not buying it, I've just got it on a watch list, are foreign stocks. There, there's not too many uh, domestic stocks that I think are, are cheap with a good P.E. ratio and, or in an industry or a market that's really gotten beaten down. I one thing that I'm trying so even to, getting maybe like indexes or ETFs that follow the S and P 500 or that, or that follow you know the total stock market are those not good bets right now or uh, no? Well, the stock market's at all time high or almost you know yeah, all time all highs. Yeah. The stock market's in a bubble, so that would be expensive. Mm. So you're you're doing the opposite. You're buying when things are expensive, and unfortunately, most likely when you do that, you're going to sell it when it's cheap. Okay. <laughs> now, one thing I like right now is Russia. You you okay. might be able to find a good uh, ETF on Russia. And the reason I say that is because remember now we are talking about panic, right? But wouldn't right now be considered the dip and we're buying into the dip or is that something? With Russia? No, no, no. I mean, with like the Sucks. stock market in general, like as far as like, because, you know, things have plummeted, obviously, with with the uh, with individual stocks and everything Right. Like so, but let's look at PE ratios, right? So okay. that's just basically price to earnings or how much you're paying for the stock market, uh -huh. right? Or the, the Buffett indicator is a very good example. Of this. Okay. That's just the stock market compared to GDP. So, um when uh, a stock is kind of historically priced normally you're looking at maybe a 15 pe ratio so the stock market trading at a 15 pe ratio so and what's you, pe stand for so basically if you've got a million dollars in earnings uh -huh. i'm willing to pay you 15 million dollars for your company okay okay so what we're at now is is at almost all-time highs so I think it was maybe a little higher in the dot com, but let's just say now, I don't know right off the top of my head, but let's say it's at 30. So normally that $1 million in cash flow, the market would be willing to pay 15 million for it. Now they're willing to pay 30 million for it. Okay. That means it's way, way, way overpriced. Yeah. See, way overpriced. It's just like a, a let's just say this, this, uh, this condominium, right? is uh normally when uh the trend line going back to 1900 yeah. right let's just say the price adjusted for inflation is usually a uh, five hundred thousand dollars right mm -hmm. now it's uh 1.5 million let's mm -hmm. say that's expensive mm -hmm. that's super expensive and so that's just what now russia though i don't i'm not saying that russia is cheap in general but it's getting cheap because there's some panic there because you've got potentially an altercation uh, a war between the United States and Russia. Mm -hmm. So that means everyone sells Russia. Well, if you're long-term, if you're bullish on Russia for the next 20 or 30 years, regardless of whether we go into a war, that could present an opportunity where those stocks get really cheap. You know, okay. go back to that old saying, you always wanna buy when there's blood in the streets. Yeah, okay. Mm -hmm. When there's blood in the streets, it's time to eat, right? As they would say. Uh, okay, so Jose Perez goes, two more questions, George. Should I buy more puts? Also, George, you think, We'll see negative interest rates. I know real rates are negative, but we're already behind. 
Yeah. So as far as puts, I mean, I, I don't want to get into that. That that's uh, I think things. that's a little that's a little risky, yeah. and you're uh, you're kind of betting that the stock market's going to go down. I don't know if it's going to go down. Who knows? And again, see what you're doing there with the puts is you're trying to guess the direction. Yeah. You're trying to guess the price. Is the stock market going to go up or down? Mm -hmm. I don't know. I don't know. I just know that it's expensive. Okay. So that doesn't mean that you short it. You know, it just means that you're 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 playing with fire there. And I think that the options for most people, it's a little risky. But what was the second part of his question? Uh, he goes, do you think uh, we'll see negative interest rates? Oh, OK. So negative nominal rates is what he's talking about. OK. Um, boy, possibly. I, I Let me say this. I think there's a higher probability that we see negative interest rates on Fed funds in the next five years than we see five percent interest rates. Oh. And I say five percent because that's kind of like normal yeah. Fed funds. And you know, even though they're talking about hiking now, I think that again, if you give me a five-year window, that there's a higher probability that we're negative Fed funds than them actually just getting to five percent, which would be the normal. Interesting how everything kind of like if something happens here, it changes this. It's very interesting. Like it's complex, but it's like it's very you better interesting. watch the news. Um, and then never know. John O'Driscoll, oh, FNF, big kudos. GG is a special kind of genius. Question for George. FOIA Fed report released FOIA. recently. Oh, yeah, FOIA. Okay. Um, Fed report released res recently about the 2008 crisis. The Fed bailed out the world to the amount of 30 trillion. Your thoughts. See you in June. Yeah, I mean, I I don't know that specific FOIA mm -hmm. uh, request and, and what they got. But uh, yeah, I mean, the Fed came in with uh, quantitative easing and doing everything that they did. And you could argue that that propped up the the banks, the stock market, and everything else, which saved the entire global economy. Um, I, I there was a lot of contributing factors there uh, that it would take me another podcast to go into. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, it, you could say that the Fed did that, but even if they did bail out the entire system, the only thing they did is kick the can down the road. And remember, it goes back to our analogy or example with the heroin addict. There you go. The only thing they did is give the heroin addict more heroin. Mm -hmm. They didn't, they didn't fix, he's not off the drug. Yeah. Right. They just gave him more heroin, which eventually makes them worse. Yeah. So, um, and this will be the last one that we'll close the show guys. Cause he's got to go, um, with everything that we talked about, the markets, real estate, um, inflation, the fed, et cetera, what should people do today? I think what they should do is look at the, the 10 year treasury. Okay. So and to, to try to predict, you know, if we're going to have a recession, because that's the big thing. You know, we we're talking about cross currents there. Yeah. If we have a big recession, that's a that's a very, very powerful cross. Do you think it's coming? Um, that's why people have to watch the 10 years. So mm -hmm. if you go back to 1950, um, every single time we've had a recession, we have had what they call an inverted yield curve. And every time we have an inverted yield curve, 100 percent of the time. We have a recession. So what is an inverted yield curve? That's just if you look at the treasuries, you know, they have different maturities. You have a three-month treasury, a one-year, a two-year, a 10-year, a 30-year. What they usually do is they look at like the one-year, the two-year, and compare that with the interest rate on the 10-year. So as you guys can imagine, the longer you lend the government money or any entity, the higher your interest rate mm -hmm. because the more risk you're taking. You know, if I give you a loan overnight compared to 10 years, uh, I'm going to want a higher interest rate that 10-year loan because I'm taking more risk, right? So what ends up happening though in an environment where the market sees a recession coming is the interest rate on the 10-year will go lower than the interest rate on the two-year. 
Okay. Wow. Actually lower. So that happened the last time wow. in August of 2019. Okay. What do we have in, in uh, 2020? Damn. Recession. You know, what happened to GFC? You can go back to every single recession we've had in the United States, go back to uh, 1950. Mm -hmm. Same thing. So if we think about the Fed raising interest rates at the short end of the curve, that's going to bring up the interest rate on the one year and the on the two year. So then you got to pay attention to the 10 year because if the 10 year goes up at the same rate, then we're not going to have an inverted yield curve and the chance of a recession is very low. Okay. But if the 10 year doesn't go up, if it stays the same around 1.7, maybe 1.8, but the Fed raises up the rates here, then that could raise the one year, the two year above where the 10 year is. Then if we get that inversion, then there's almost a 100% chance that we get a recession. We get a recession, then that's going to see some serious economic pain because again, remember, they can't, or it's harder for them to prop up the system because now we have inflation. We don't have that low inflation environment. So that's when you see potentially the recession creating the stock market going down, housing market going down, unemployment going up and up and up and up. And you have that feedback loop where things just get worse and worse and worse. Hold cash or buy assets then right now with the, at this point with, with the volatility? So I, I think you do both because you want a diversified portfolio. Bam. But one thing I can tell you is for my personal for portfolio, I'm increasing my cash levels. So I'm increasing the level of cash as a percentage of my portfolio that I would typically have. So a little more dry powder. Yeah. Just and we're in talking case. straight liquid sitting in a bank somewhere ready to deploy. Yeah. The cash. So, okay. so if you yeah. see a, a down, if you see a March of 2020, mm -hmm. you've got cash to go in there and bam, take advantage of it when things are cheap. Yeah. My, okay. my man just said, just hold on for now and wait on, on some cash. So some, yeah. Some and and on, it's fortunately that, you know, the fed and the government's put us in a very difficult position where there's a strong negative carry on cash, right? Because mm -hmm. that cash position, you're losing purchasing power if we have inflation go up. Yeah. But the question is, is, is it worth it? You know, am I willing to pay, let's just say we have 7% inflation. Am I willing to pay 7% per year to hold that cash position to take advantage of a stock market crash that goes down by, let's say 30 or 40%. Do I think the probability of a stock market crash is that high where I'm willing to pay 7% to hold dry powder? And for me, the answer is yes. Yeah. Damn. Likewise. Okay. So, uh, Guys, that that was that awesome. fire! Holy crap, man! Don DeMarco, <laughs> Don DeMarco, like the goddamn video, guys. Uh, this was probably one of the most informative podcasts Great. we've ever done, man. Uh, George, thank you so much for coming. I know you got a flight to catch. Yeah, thanks George, for having me. Where guys. can I find you? Where brother? can people find you, man? Please. Oh, just my name. It's George G A M M O N. Gammon is, is the way you spell my last name. Yeah, it's right there on the Streamyard thing. Boom. So if you just Google that, uh, all the, my two YouTube channels will come up. I've got a podcast called The Rebel Capitalist Show, and then uh, you know we do the live events, Rebel Capitalist Live. You'll find all that stuff if you just June. Google my name. And if you guys thought this was informative, you need to watch his actual YouTube videos where he has a board and he shows it to you guys. You know what I'm yeah, saying? That's yeah. that's it's amazing stuff. So um, George, thank you so much for coming. Yeah, all his links me. are below, guys. Subscribe to this channel. Follow him on Twitter. Follow him on Instagram. Fantastic, uh, you know, content creator, legend, legend, and uh, hopefully we can have you, uh, Kiyosaki and McElroy here in one uh, show, and we can Kenny. just do a whole Kenny. Yeah, that'd be a lot of fun. Yeah. So All right. uh, cool. Other than that, guys, we'll catch you back here in about three three, three, three hours. hours with our boy Brandon Carter to talk about making money in 2022. So thank you guys so much. Peace. Peace.